podcast is brought to you by Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So what's your name, Icy? Stuntman Mike. Stuntman Mike's your name. You ask anybody. Hey, Warren. Who is this guy? Stuntman Mike. And who the hell is Stuntman Mike? He's Stuntman. Two separate sets of voluptuous women are stalked at different times by a scarred stuntman who uses his death-proof cars to execute his murderous plans. Director Quentin Tarantino presents an adrenaline shot to the heart, Death Proof, a grindhouse film that pays tribute to the balls-out, pedal-to-the-metal car chases of the 70s. Featuring exhilarating high-speed action, jaw-dropping stunts, and some of the most quotable lines since Pulp Fiction. Troublemaker Studios, Dimension Films, and the Church of Tarantino Podcast presents Death Proof's 15th anniversary celebration. It's a white heart juggernaut at 200 miles an hour. Welcome all you inglorious bastards to a very special episode of the Church of Tarantino podcast. I am the Reverend Scott Kay, and I want to thank you all for joining me as we celebrate the 15th anniversary of the release of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino's fifth film, Death Proof. Joining me today to help commemorate and to take a retrospective look back on QT's first foray into the horror genre are Elwood Jones, host of the AC Film Club podcast, the Movie and Tea podcast, and the Game War podcast, Mr. Tim Trashmouth Mills, host of the Horror Flicks and Guitar Picks podcast, and Sin Electric, musician, composer, and lead singer of the alt-rock band Noise of Rumors, whose latest solo release, My Crazy 88, was created created to help inspire Tarantino's 10th film. So welcome one and all, and may Tarantino be with you always. And thank you all three of you for joining me. You are the first three newbies. A lot of times I record with the people who've been on a lot, and it's fun, but it's really nice to see three fresh faces who can bring something new, because I know a lot of the other guys I've recorded with when we did Reservoir Dogs, I've recorded with all three of those gentlemen before, and so, you know, it's usually turns into some kind of like ball-busting weird thing, and we get off topic and stuff, but it'd be nice to talk to three new people. So I will start with our furthest away from us, Mr. Elwood Jones, <laughs> oh, another another English guest. I have a lot of them, so I actually think you guys outrank all the Americans. Like I have more English guests than I do Americans. I don't know why that is. That's that would be a first. It normally seems that everyone's over in America, which is just like a pain from setting up any sort of recording. So I know. Yes, you were doing it nicely at nine last week when we recorded. It was at ten o'clock. So I, I, oh, I appreciate you doing this, um, coming all the way across. Why don't you go ahead and I mean, you have three podcasts. At least that was on your <laughs> social. You do. I'm assuming you're still doing all three, but. Why don't you go ahead and tell yeah. all of us, the, us listening and those who are listening many months now from here when we record this, to uh, what your podcasts are and 
how you got started in them? Uh, yeah, well, really, I started, I've been writing about cool foreign and obscure cinema since 99. Um, my blog is from the depths of DVD hell. And from that, it led into the podcasting game. Um, obviously, I've got the Asian Cinema Film Club or the AC Film Club, which is sort of like my main show, uh, along with Movies and Tea. Two very similar sort of shows in many ways. Asian Cinema Film Club is just about providing an introduction to Asian cinema. We have no limitations on what we cover. So we cover from Akira to Zakatoi. We'll cover like really highbrow art uh, stuff from Kurosawa. We'll cover like Takashi Miike. We've done like Takashi Miike month. We did Anthony Wong month. And it's worked out pretty well because I'm kind of like the video store kid and my partner, the professor, Mr. Steven Palmer, is uh, kind of like the highbrow guy. So we've got this really great sort of working relationship where he exposed me to stuff I would never watch. I exposed him to stuff that he wishes he never watched. Um, and with Movies and Tea, it's a chance for us to go through director filmographies. At the moment, we are releasing our Tarantino season, so it worked out real nicely in this one. Um, but we've got a couple of other seasons already in the can because we were sort of mass recording stuff because my cousin Kim was going off to have her first child. Uh, so we've got our Creature Feature season coming up, and we are currently working on our Mirazaki season as well. And... Through that as well, we do other fun things. We have like Shark Week over in the Asian Cinema Film Club. We have uh, Kaiju Christmas, where every Christmas we get together, we watch um, a Godzilla movie or a Gamera movie, something Kaiju related, and then get drunk and play ping pong. It's just a really great time. <laughs> so you're really aren't doing a whole lot with your time then, is what you're saying. I just, <laughs> I'm just like, to keep myself busy, I find that like, if I like take a week off, I get like a day or two into it and then I get like, I, I need to be doing something. It's, so I just create projects for myself um and that's why i have all these these podcasts i have to edit and why i have things i have to write up and stuff but it's it's good to be busy and when you're doing something you love you're never working really you're just sharing what you love with other like-minded people at least you hope so so i agree 100 percent my good man, Mr. Tim Trashmouth Mills. Tim, since I already kind of know about what you're doing, but this will be the first time you telling my audience what you do, or at least the audience from the Church of Tarantino, why don't you explain to us what Horror Flicks and Guitar Picks is? Definitely. Uh, so pretty much the Horror Flicks and Guitar Picks podcast is just, I interview, you know, musicians about their favorite horror movies. And it start, first it started off being like, you know, kind of staying in the realm of like uh, hardcore, metalcore, and like pop, pop punk and stuff. Because, uh, you know, the kind of genres share the same fandom or whatever. But uh, I kind of just branch out now and just do whatever I feel like because of you know more for like my enjoyment than anything you know but uh also every now and then I'll, uh, but pretty much i bring those guests on and talk to them about their favorite horror movies uh and just in general like every time every now and then when i reach out to somebody they'll be like oh i'll pick this specific movie and i'm like well no like i want you to come on and tell me about like all your favorite horror movies and like you know like your experience with horror movies so uh i usually do that i usually end with like some hypothetical questions and then i always ask my guests if they have a horror story of their own uh, to kind of end it but um so then uh every now and then to break up the monotony i will have like a horror guest you know like an actor or director or cinematographer or something like that you know chat about you know just do like a regular interview and stuff like that so uh some of my past guests include all the way from charlie from uh benante from anthrax uh to the guitar player for the band terror to you know i've had davy oberlin from uh, uh all the damn vampires on one of the guitar players for uh no the drummer for portugal the man jason Seacrest has been on but then as far as like horror guests i've had lloyd kaufman brian usna uh the guy that did co-wrote the score for the upcoming pearl with tyler bates and stuff like that so uh super excited to you know for some of the stuff i got coming up you know i'll be doing an all uh horror month next month uh the month of october i'll be doing all music uh guests but i'll be asking them about like their actual halloween favorites and stuff like that not just horror movies and then in november of course you'll be coming on Hopefully, you know, if everything still works out and everything, you'll be coming on my podcast and I'll 
be doing all podcast months. So, uh, but that's pretty much all I do. Um, other than that, so. I appreciate it. I mean, just name dropping like a motherfucker right now. That's what you're doing. I mean, Jesus. Well, I want people to know what they're getting into. I think. <laughs> but uh, I have had uh, Howard Berger on who has worked on Kill Bill. And I asked him about working with uh, Tarantino. And we talked about it for a few times. And I have had Robert Kurtzman on or Kurtzman on as well, who was the originator of From Dust Till Dawn. You know, yeah. it's his story. Uh, and I asked him about that as well. So, we, you know, we talk about that. So, if, you know, interested in those. But uh, other than that, I will give you the heads up that I'm drinking because I'm stoked that we're talking about Death Proof. So I'll probably have to go pee. So I'll just mute myself and go instead of interrupting anybody. <laughs> as long as it's not chartreuse. <laughs> uh, I thought about stopping to get something. I was like, uh, I don't want to be late. Like, <laughs> y'all saw I was already the last one in here. So it's all right. Well, it's because, you know, you had all those names to bring with you. I swear, Kurtzman was the last one you dropped to. Like, the biggest one was Kurtzman. And you're like, I'll hold him last. Like, he's like, you're, oh, oh I have this extra ace in my card. I'm going to throw it out there. You sneaky son of a bitch. All right. I got you now. All right, cool. I'm coming up so, on Oh, by the way, episodes, I also talked to, you know, so. Kurtzman, you know, the guy. I like how you said, who did Death Proof instead of, like, dropping, like, you know, the guy who created The Walking Dead and all, you know, that stuff, you know, nothing like that. Well done. However, my next guest, I think, has you beat. And the only reason I know this is because I got extremely rageful jealousy of... The fact that one, she lives in California, but not just that, she has met two, two of my Tarantino idols, and one most recently, but Miss Sin Electric has met Mr. Samuel L. Jackson as a picture, and the great Mr. Blonde, Mr. Michael Madsen, and most recently, if I'm not mistaken, she's recently met him and took a picture, so take that, Tim. Hey, I'll take that, because that is, that's fucking awesome. I've only met Tracy Toms, so that's the only person I've met. And she just made this amazing album, you know, I'll let you you say it, because otherwise I feel like I'm mansplaining your own goddamn work, so just tell me to shut the fuck up, and you tell us about your stuff, and I'm shutting up. No, it's 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 really cool hearing some, like, a, a fellow Tarantino fan, because, uh, I mean, like, talk about my this project that I've spent like six seven months on and it's really cool because like I all I have is my brother like we I have a huge age gap and so we didn't get to start really diving into the things that we really like you know he you know when you're growing up and you're trying to like learn what what music you're into or movies you're into you know he didn't get to that my level like not you know all the crazy shit that i like you know until you know he started getting a little bit older so <laughs> i only show him all my stuff and i'm like hey look at this song or look at did you know that you know in this movie blah, blah, blah. and i think at this point he's just like yeah i know like okay tarantino like okay <laughs> <laughs> so it's cool hearing somebody else you know uh, appreciate the all the stuff that like i've i've really worked my ass off you know creating but yes i i have been spending the last about six or seven months studying his not only his films but his the his inspiration for everything that he's written watching all the movies that he used to watch growing up as well as going through all the soundtracks of those movies and just really trying to get into his mind because from what i hear in his writing process that's when he starts picking songs and or when he has like he has soundtracks that's playing that are playing while he's writing and then maybe uses those songs so i wanted to get in on it as early as possible i didn't know how soon he's going to start writing i mean i know he's doing the podcast and he's doing like other things and stuff like that so i'm like man i've loved tarantino since i was really young so i think 
I need to get on this quickly and hope that, you know, he can, I mean, the whole premise, the whole reason why I'm doing it, because I want one of those songs to eventually be in his movies. I think it'd be really cool. If it doesn't, it doesn't, it's fine, whatever. It's still a fun project that I was able to work on after not being with my band for like, since the pandemic, basically. So it's been really fun to kind of step out of the box of like indie rock music and dive into these like different genres, which I've never, never even bothered touching. So it's really, it's been really fun. Well, what I will have is I'm going to have the links to the song that blew me away immediately, which is your first one, which is Love Song for Vengeance. And not only is it an amazing song, but the fact that you recorded how you played it. Now, I, I'm not, you know, not trying to kiss your ass on this, but it was like watching Prince or Lenny Kravitz, the kind of artists who play all the instruments. You played all the instruments. It's you the whole time. And then you put up the video of all the Easter eggs for all the songs that you I don't want to say, but like you, you were able to work in whether it was the the beat pattern or you brought down an octave. It's just it's fucking genius, and yet you made it its own. So that will be in the show notes, and I've already told the other guests on here they need to see it immediately. But it's truly unbelievable. It's not just like you kind of hit it. You hit it on all cylinders. Like you hit it on all cylinders. If someone had put all your songs in a playlist and mixed them up with songs from Tarantino, I would have had to guess. Fuck, which movie did that one come from? Like that's how good they are that if I wasn't looking, if I didn't have, you know, like my iPod or my iPod, yeah, that's, I still have those are things. If I didn't have my iTunes on and I wasn't looking at what song was coming up, I would not have known. I would be like, shit, is that Hateful Eight? Or maybe, wait, wait, wait oh, is that one that happened in Kill? But like, I truly would not have known which song, some of your songs, or movie they came from, especially when you played the instrumentals. I would have been like, oh yeah, that's right. I think that was in the background of this. So you really knocked it out of the park. Absolutely Killed it, killed it with your attempt. And if Tarantino doesn't pick one, it'll bring him down a notch for me. Just just a hair, just a hair. But, you know, so at least you didn't try to do, like, movies for Michael Bay. Because that's, he's the opposite <laughs> side of the spectrum for me. It fucking sucks. Anyway, so we'll get into him later. But let's jump right into it. And we will start, ladies, first with my very first opening questions for you. And that is, when do you recall first seeing this film? And what was the impression it left on you? I watched it. The opening day that it came out with Planet Terror as the whole grindhouse thing. When I watched when I watched Planet Terror, I didn't really care for it too much. I haven't watched it in like ten years, so I have to rewatch it to give an, a more honest opinion of it now. But I remember back then I was kind of like, eh, it's okay. Like I get it, I get what they're trying to do, um, but I didn't care for it too too much. Um, but when Death Proof came out, my mind was blown. Like I really really enjoyed that that film. Every I can tell everything that. Tarantino was trying to do, grabbing all his influences from all the Grindhouse movies and and the slasher film and the the car chase stuff, like everything. It was just amazing. And then the gruesome violence, like I'm a sucker for that. So when all those scenes started coming up, I was like, oh, that is so cool. I probably was the only one like, yeah, you're laughing. Like, oh, what is this? But yeah, um, that was the impression. It was my my jaw was to the floor for sure. Mr. Trashmouth, same question for you, sir. Uh, so pretty much uh, the first time I saw this movie is my stepbrother was moving down to Georgia from uh, North Carolina. Well, his mom was, so like he was still going back and forth. And uh, I went down there with him, and I was only, I was 15 years old at the time. And we pretty much, you know, you had to be 17 to get into radar movies. But at that time, you know, like 
uh, online ticketing at first like really started. So we bought our tickets and like we even printed them out, you know, because you still had to print them out back then. So you just didn't have the phone. And uh, so we went up there and tried to sneak in and lo and behold, we got in and we pretty much sat and watched the five hour spectacle that was Grindhouse. And I loved every bit of I was kind of surprised how much my stepbrother loved it, not being a horror fan at all, but I absolutely adored it. Everything about it was uh, amazing. And I really enjoyed the like false trip, fake trailers. I wish we got more movies out of those, but uh, I am just stoked that you know, they gave us a full experience, you know what I mean? Like, uh, and the fact that you can still like watch it today, you know what I mean? Like they still put it together on a Blu-ray and all that stuff. But so I just remember, uh, I, I think it was like a couple weeks old by the time I finally saw it, but it was one of those things that, uh, like nobody in my family was really going to take me to, to see some five hour horror film, let alone something <laughs> that was, you know, a hard art at 15. So they didn't really care what I was watching, but I always wish they did Thanksgiving. That's yes. the, my favorite trailer. Always wish they did Thanksgiving. I don't know why. I just really wish they always did Thanksgiving. Mr. Jones, uh, a little different for you because uh-huh. a lot of my guests have told me, and this is, yes. and if some of you listen to my podcast, I think I, we discussed it, is the reason that this movie did not play well is a couple of reasons. Is One, the Grindhouse and movie theaters like we have here, the Grindhouse theaters and also drive-ins are not prevalent over in the UK. No. So kind of that experience makes no fucking sense to people. Like, I'm sure there's things you guys have. Like, we'll be honest, there's... We're three Americans on here. Tea time, none of us, it makes no sense to us. Like, we're going to stop for tea like two times a day. Doesn't make sense to us. However, that's exactly you. So how did this movie land for you? Because I know you guys got it as a separate release and not so much as the Grindhouse experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, came to, played in the States first. And we got all the advanced press and like total film empire they've like viewed it five stars across the board this is like this amazing experience we've got all the press coming across saying you know it's rodriguez tarantino together at last they've got all these hot young directors also doing fake trailers and we're like super am for it doesn't play as well in america as they want the weinsteins absolutely shit the bed and say for everywhere outside of america we're splitting it into two movies and this is like come through to myself and i'm just like fuming i'm like working at the airport at the time i'm working in uh retail just like at a news agent sort of thing and i'm storming around the back the back room like cursing and got like the wednesday's like what am i gonna do what am i gonna do and then i'm like i'm gonna get on a plane i'm gonna fly to la I'm going to see Grindhouse and I can get back. And we were like, the great thing about working at the airport, you have ticket desks right there. And I was like, on the phone to it, it's like, what's the time it's going to take me to fly to LA and back? <laughs> can I do this in a weekend? And I left to work on Friday, got on a plane, went to LA, straight from the airport into a taxi to, just like I said, cinema, needs to see film. Big tip, pimp tip, tease. It's like, poor guy, like, been bothered by this, like, sleep-deprived Englishman, like, time zone's completely out of whack, and I'm, like, at the same time, like, pounding any drinks just to keep the caffeine levels up. Go to see Grindhouse, and then it was, like, as soon as I saw it, it was, like, back in the taxi, back in the plane, <laughs> back to England, and it was, like, in work on Monday, and my boss was, like, is it true you flew to LA to see a movie? And I was, like, yes. And he's, like, okay. And it's, like, just a zombie, like, the whole of the Monday. But I had seen the Grindhouse experience we were promised. And... Brit Sinners was so ticked off about this. Like, you didn't even have, like, posters up at the cinema. You just had, like, a little, like, a photocopy A4 piece of uh, paper in the window that said, yeah, we're showing Death Proof. We're showing Planet Terror. They were just beyond ticked with what the Weinsteins had done because we'd been cheated out of, essentially, the grindhouse experience we were promised. And Tarantino was like, you know, Britain doesn't have this sort of experience of double features. In America, it's sort of like, you know, people saw two movies and they like to go out for dinner and a movie. And if you fuck with someone's dinner, then they're not going to go and see your two movies. So it was a whole mess. And it sort of killed dead 
what could have been a really interesting project. So Noah Rodriguez and Eli Roth wanted to do a Grindhouse 2. Uh, we never got to see Tarantino's uh, Cowgirls in Sweden, which have been really sort of interesting to see the fake trailer for. And Rodriguez has sort of hung on to it. I mean, he obviously did the Machete movies coming out of it. Eli Roth toyed around for the longest time with doing Thanksgiving, but I think sort of his star sort of like rose and fell pretty quickly. And Rob Zombie was sort of like everything I shot for... The Werewolves of the SS, that was what was on the screen. And again, I think that would have been an interesting project. But if you, you can't really do a Nazi exploitation movie in our current climate. It was a fun, fun trailer. And Edgar Wright, again, was sort of like, you know, I've got nowhere to go. <laughs> I've done, I've, everything I had with this idea was on the screen. I mean, yeah, do you want to Don't see, doesn't have a yeah, whole lot of legs. <laughs> do you really want to see Nick, <laughs> Nick in a baby's diaper for like a whole movie? No. <laughs> But um, you can, the same group has sort of like stayed in, you can see like they constantly do podcasts together and you can see that that core group was like really thought they were onto something. And, you know, it's, it sounds insane to like go to LA and then perhaps in retrospect, probably like go to New York would have been a better way of approaching it. But it was just like one of those situations. So like, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to like watch some like cam copy off the internet or something. And it was just totally worth it to see this like unique experience that we've not had since. Um, and Death Proof, I think, whether you watch it on its own or separated, is just such a unique entry in the Tarantino verse as well. So that is probably the coolest fucking story, <laughs> and that's exactly what I would do. Like honestly, like uh, if somehow Tarantino had a movie, he's like, yeah, we're just gonna do this over in England. I'm on a plane. It's happening. I'm not missing out <laughs> on this opportunity. In fact, I, I was gonna say I was like, LA, like there is like New York is a hair close to like by a couple hours, but it's you probably had like a connection. You're like. You're thinking, where has got the most cinemas? And you think, L.A., that's where they make films. So let's go to L.A. So, um, so yes, it was good. That is awesome. That is absolutely awesome. Mr. Trashmouth, I love being able to call you by your, your little surname. Why do you think that this film is so goddamn underrated and just doesn't get the proper love it deserves? Like, even from Tarantino himself, you know, he says this is his worst film. Yeah. And again, I've always did the thing, if you're going to compare films, you it's the Hanzo sort comparison. You don't compare Tarantino films to each other. You compare them to every other film because it's impossible. And we're going to get into it in a second, but it's impossible to try to number them and, and keep them in an area because it's very much what have you last watched? That it really feels like it's very that kind of territory we're in to try to decide what's the better film. Yeah. If that proves his worst, I put that up against anything Rob Zombie's ever done. <laughs> Way better when we get into what the monsters are going to turn into. I'm a Rob Zombie apologist, but the monsters doesn't look like shit. But I, yeah. other. But go ahead, sorry. What, what is it that people just don't get about how amazing this film truly is? Uh, well, I think it does have a little bit to do with, like, uh, I mean, as much as I hate to say it, and I'm, you know, I was a big fan of Quentin Tarantino going into this, and he was probably, you know, my main draw going in, obviously. I like Robert Rodriguez, but outside of From Dustle Dawn, it was mostly for the faculty and spy kids. So it was like <laughs> kind of a mixed bag. But, um, and I, that's kind of my thing is other than the faculty, they really neither one dipped their toes in horror outside of From Dust Till Dawn, which wasn't really straightforward horror. It was more like action horror comedy uh, hybrid type thing. And it was an amazing movie. And I wish I saw it before, you know, having that spoiler of like, it's a vampire film type thing, you know, um, even though with the title, you kind of get kind, kind of a hint. But but so I, I think that just kind of had a little bit to do with it. You know, the they weren't big names in horror. And then you were also asking their fans to go watch them do a five hour horror film. So I think it was just, you know, a lot to ask of their fans and um so i have the grindhouse blu-ray 
and I actually ended up watching the Grindhouse version of Death Proof, and it's the first time I've watched it this way in forever, because I don't know what happened to it, but I had a DVD copy of this extended cut, and that's how I've always watched Death Proof, because I watch it a lot without Planet Terror. I like Planet Terror, you know, fine, but Death Proof is just such a good film. It was the first time in a while I really realized how much, you know, uh, Tarantino was taken out of the Grindhouse version of the film. Uh, and the extended cut, they definitely add back in quite a bit of that dialogue stuff, you know, like even down to the uh, the buying the French Allure magazine or the Italian magazine or whatever, you know, like, uh, or Vogue is what it is. Italian Vogue is what it is. Like that whole scene right there, like they reference Fangoria and like other like horror magazines that like nobody else even references ever in their films. And uh, so just stuff like that, I think, uh, I think between the, you know, the lack, the stuff that was taken out, you know, to shrink the film, you know, to, to pile on to being a double feature is why Tarantino's fans didn't really flock, you know, like love it when they saw it. And then also, I think just, you know, it was a, a tall task to ask to watch, you know, five hours of horror from people that, you know, Tarantino's known for his gore, but never like horror. And then uh, same thing with uh, Rob Rodriguez. He did Faculty, which is way different than From Dust Till Dawn, but it's still kind of like these you know kiddish it's like it was still like a nine very 90s very like high school horror movie where like in this movie they were promoted and as we're going back to the 70s and 60s like exploitation films and it's like you've never shown us especially robert mm -hmm. rodriguez he's never really shown anything that you know showed that he could do it quentin tarantino you know everybody had faith in it was just like i said the cut was kind of i feel like uh where he lost a little bit of uh, love from it but that's also opinion, though. You know, I don't know how people really truly feel about it. Mr. Jones. It's a weird one in particular, because I think when it comes to this film, it's going in many different ways than we've seen with Tarantino before, because while it's obviously going back into that movie in a movie world that we see in, like, Kill Bill, and in a way we see it in, um, like, Django and Hateful Eight, although that could be obviously disputed, depending whether you want to, like, call those the movie in the movie world or the alternate history verse. I think the, so this was like his first time just like writing like groups of female characters and I know a lot of people like praising like the dialogue in there for being kind of realistic and I just don't understand what it was that didn't connect with this and I think a lot of people said that like the Cartier sequence goes on too long but I'm coming to this as like a fan of like George Miller's Mad Max films like Vanishing Point, um, Dead and Mary Crazy, Larry, Disease Reels sort of like cosploitation movies, especially the exploitation movies in particular, because exploitation love a car chase, like you have like coming of age dramas and they like frog dreaming and they will put a car chase in for no apparent reason. And Tarantino with Death Proof is here wanting to throw his hat in the ring and create like, like he does with everything. It's like, oh, if I'm going to do like a fight scene, like I want to do the greatest fight scene. And yeah, he wants to do the greatest car scene. And I think a lot of people aren't so big on seeing like their big drawn out car chase sequence and you think a few years down the line and sort of like Mad Max Fury Road which is one big car chase sequence and people are raving about it so perhaps it's just a little ahead of its time the only problem I have with this is just the scenes we rely off the male characters are just what bog it down and I'm Every time we've got the female characters, I'm having a great time. I'm enjoying the banter back and forth. As soon as we have the male characters, it's all like, oh, great, guys, broing out. That's what I wanted. And then they disappear and the movie gets better again. So. <laughs> you get a little disappointed they don't get killed, though, right? Like, there's a little, I was a little disappointed that Eli and his buddy Omar oh, didn't right. get killed. But all right, maybe another film, maybe Death Proof 2. Maybe that'll be close up. <laughs> it was just so much opportunity to get rid of those guys in some dramatic fashion, but. Stemmer Mike, he's a man of his method. He likes to set up the one big kill rather than have like a lot of little kills. He'd just rather have that big moment. So, Miss Electric, your feelings on why this movie is so underrated and underappreciated? I think it's because they paired it with, with Planet Terror. I, I, I think, uh, no hate on Robert Rodriguez. I like some of his films and everything, but I think it lost value 
by marketing it as uh, Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino collaboration, which is great, but they, I think people didn't understand that it was still a Quentin Tarantino movie. I mean, I think maybe even back when I watched it, I might have not even understood myself. I mean, I knew it was done by Quentin, but I knew Robert had his hand in it a bit, and I think that's what made it feel less exciting as opposed to when Kill Bill comes out or when Inglourious Bastards comes out. It's like, oh, the new Quentin Tarantino movie and everybody gets all excited. But this time it's marketed as the Grindhouse, uh, two films. And some people don't understand, you know, what a double feature is. People don't understand what Grindhouse is. You know, it's it's a lot. It, it's a lot, I think, that has to do with the way that they marketed it. I don't think it has to do with the film itself because I think it's really great. And the people that I know that aren't necessarily a tarantino fan or like maybe not watched all his movies and i've shown them this movie they're like on the edge of their seat and they're just like oh my god this is great regardless of who like they don't even know who tarantino is or whatever like they're just like this is awesome like, it makes you feel like you're hanging out with a bunch of girls and then all this crazy stuff happens and then you're just like oh my god and then the obviously the end and you finally get that you know revenge scene and you're just like oh i think really it was just a marketing thing i think really it's just that uh overall Anybody else that I've come in contact with, it's everybody's liked it. So I think on its own, it would have stood it would have stood a chance a little bit. But I think because they paired it, I don't think uh, people like that too much. So I'm hearing that the Weinstein's fucked something up. <laughs> That's a shock. <laughs> Weinstein's did something wrong. Oh. Come on, That's crazy. That's insanity. No, not those guys. Those two of the most lovable guys that Disney ever hired. Fantastic for them. <laughs> Which I will say though that nowadays, uh, also probably would do better nowadays because people are used to watching three-hour films. Like back then, you weren't getting that all the time. Like nowadays, like literally your average film is three hours, so pushing to five hours wouldn't be crazy. But back then, you were watching like ninety-minute movies almost weekly. Like if you're watching in a movie. Well, not even that people binge watch a whole fucking season of like <laughs> our shows in a day like 13 hours that's their eyes are pasted open but like five hours in the cinema fuck you i'm not doing that that's ridiculous <laughs> why would i want to do that <laughs> uh mr jones we'll start with you on this closing opening question which is a very weird one and even though i just recently said you don't compare any movies to tarantino films to themselves so we're not comparing but where would you have this movie death proof fall in the nine that he's released. Where does it fall in your ratings oh. right now? Yes, putting you on the spot. Yeah, it just put me on the spot here. I'm going to be controversial and say that this is currently in my number two slot. Wow, all right. The main reason being that Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction are so ingrained in, in pop culture. Like, I was watching Simpsons the other day, and they have a Reservoir Dogs setup. Like, they, they've got, like, introducing, like, the nerd characters, and they like, got the little taglines on Reservoir Dogs. And, and it's sort of like, there's so many movies that are so ingrained that you kind of know them, like, off like the back of your hand. Kill Bill Volume 1 um, will always be my favorite. It's just such a homage to pop samurai cinema, to the kung fu cinema that I just love and adore, and it taps into so many other things that I love, and I, I've had such a wild time seeing Kill Bill Volume 1. That was another one where we drove like two hours to go and see that because it was the only print in Cornwall. And so that's always going to be my number one. But as the Death Proof, I think it's sort of slowly eked its way up. And I think it currently sits like number two. Inglourious Bastards is very sort of kind of heavy. And Jackie Brown, I think, has also moved its way up as I've got older. And I think <laughs> Jackie Brown's a film, as you get older, you appreciate more because you kind of like age into the same area of these characters. So it's like, it's nice to see older people in a relationship. <laughs> 
and you appreciate like Robert Foster <laughs> and Pan- well Pancreas just yeah yeah uh, Pancreas Pancreas she's yeah she's fucking he's untouchable yeah. yeah so now you know why they now you know why they talked about it in the very first movie he ever wrote you know yeah. and that's why like she makes an appearance without being an appearance of Reservoir Dogs she's very important so um yes for myself I mean it's it's number two it's it's fast paced enough for like casual viewing and at the same time it's and it delivers on all those sort of like beats that you want for a Tarantino thing whereas something like Inglorious Bastards and like Cave for Eight and uh, the more sort of heavier movies are sort of like I've got to sit down and enjoy it. it's more like a, a meal uh, whereas this is more like the, the takeout experience it's sort of like your Saturday night movie love it love it Miss Electric where does this rank currently I know this will change by the time you even listen to this, you'll probably be like no it doesn't rank <laughs> everyone will change their mind because other movies you'll know, rewatch and you'll be like damn it two months ago I really thought this was this high where does Death Proof rank in your top nine of Tarantino I have to tell you man I hate ranking his movies I I know stand it <laughs> it makes me so angry when I'm writing out my list I'm like no but then this one no, no but then this one and I'm like oh, how do I- well we wouldn't be a church if we didn't do something that made you feel like <laughs> why am I doing this so <laughs> exactly um it, it's currently ranked seventh it has nothing to do with like me not liking it I love this movie but if the other, if it's fighting with the other ones, you know, in a ring, then yeah, it has to go a little bit lower for sure. Yeah, it, it's still a really great film, but yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> no, I I totally understand. It's hard. Like I sit back and think, oh, I'm gonna put a higher, and then I'm like, oh god, is it like I'm for me? It's like is it seven or eight? Like no, I know what you mean. That's why that's why you say you should never <laughs> rank them against each other because it pisses you off that you like, damn it, this movie's so damn good. Don't you dare make me put it lower and say that it's lower. So I totally understand. Mr. Trashmouth. Last but not least, where is it ranking? Uh, so let me make sure I do the right one so I don't give myself away. But it's number three uh, for <laughs> me. Uh, and mostly because, like, pretty much, like, uh, I think between what you were saying with, you know, uh, you don't want to rank these against each other. And like Sen was saying, it's like, you know, uh, even though it's seventh, it's still a great film. My thing is, it's like, you know, and it being three for me and two for Elwood, it shows that like with his movies, it's all about like what you prefer in a film because they're all so good. Like it's like, yes. uh, like if anybody walked up to me and said Jackie Brown was their number one, I'd be like, OK, I completely understand. You know, what I mean? it's one of those things. So um, for me, I feel like uh, my one and two always go back and forth, like a little bit after finding your podcast. I, I watched the Warriors Bastards again because that's what I thought was my favorite film in the uh, Tarantino thing. And it was because it was the first one that dove into like the let's change history. But then of course, like a few weeks later, you were doing the Kill Bill movies. So I watched the Kill Bill movies and I was like, fuck, this might be my favorite because that's like my introduction to Tarantino. So like <laughs> those two kind of go back and forth as one and two. And I feel like it's because of those certain reasons. It's not because they're better than the other films because I love Django. I love Hateful. I love Reservoir. You know, Pulp. everybody in this podcast right now probably loves, doesn't like, they probably love every single one of his movies. But it's still like when you have to rank them, you have to rank them. So it's literally just because of like, I like the history history aspect that he finally started doing with you know Inglorious and then carried on almost through every movie since and then um I really enjoy uh you know Kill Bill for just being my introduction to Tarantino because like I said I was 15 when Death Proof came out so I was really young when you know Kill Bill came out and stuff so uh but Death Proof you know just being a horror fan and is why that one shoots up for me so far is just it's such a good horror movie it's you know it's one of the only movies that's done to like go back you know in time correctly you know like other than like Ty West House of the Devil and shit like that you know like there's not many movies that have come out since 2000 that have taken place in the 70s that don't look like crisp as hell you know and stuff like that so um it definitely shows Tarantino's love for film and just uh at that point you know he's done a heist film you could say he's done a martial arts film you know and all that stuff but you know for him to go in and just do a horror film just as good as those films just shows that he 
loves all cinema and not just, you know, he's not just sticking himself in one genre. So He's not just a one-trick pony. And even though right now as we record, end of August, this Friday coming out will be in Glorious Bastards. So I have a feeling by the time you listen to this, you'll jump in Glorious Bastards back over Kill Bill again because you'll listen to my Glorious Bastards episode. So there you go. Fuck yeah. I'll definitely be That's what the stuff. church is here for. We're here to make things uncomfortable. That's what churches do. What do you horny gals want? Speaking of uncomfortable, we're going to jump into the film. And what better way to jump into this film than talking about motherfucking feet? Because he's had feet before for g- good reason, obviously. Like he's leaning into the, you know, the final girl, the whole sexploitation uh, angle of 70s and 80s horror. So feet, in my opinion, have always been his go-to instead of TNA. So when we get introduced to Mia Wallace, and I talked about this on the Pulp Fiction, her feet are her introduction character for us, right? So what did we just learn about before we ever meet her? We learned about when you touch this woman's feet, motherfuckers get thrown <laughs> off of buildings through glass enclosed greenhouses for touching their feet. And what's the really first thing we see when she says hello to Vincent? Her motherfucking feet. So right off the bat, he's telling us this woman is dangerous. She is a blind spot for him, but there could be trouble, right? But in this one, the feet are used instead of tits and ass. And I, I, that's what I love about Tarantino is he can still sexualize and use this, the tropes that you get in horror films without doing the old 80s. You know, if, you, if you're ever watching Friday the 13th and some kid's about to have sex and you come on the screen, you see boobs, someone's about to die within 30 seconds. Like, if you see boobs in Friday the 13th, she's dying. So it's like, it's happening almost immediately. Like, it's almost like a calling card. It's like, oh, I just saw breast. That woman's dead. Like, that's it for her. If you don't see her breast, she makes it to the end of the film. You see her breast, that woman is dead. But in this film, it's about feet. And then, you know, this is really his only shots he's ever used, really close up on women's asses. He sexualizes them on purpose. Not like, you know, he's just doing it for, for kicks and to, to be a dirtbag. But he wants you to have that horror feel, especially in that first half. The second half, he pulls back on that quite a bit. But in the first half especially, he throws it out there. So, how do we feel? We're going to start with Miss Sin, since she happens to be back at the way. We're going around the roulette wheel here. How do you feel about his use of feet? Is it too much? Is it his most identifiable film trait? It is definitely not his most recognizable trait. Um, I, I think we've all made the Tarantino likes feet, you know, fetish um, joke here and there, but I think it's overused at this point. I think it, it, it's funny sometimes, and other times it's just like, okay, yeah, okay, I get it. But there's so much that he does in his movies that I think are so much more recognizable to know, like, if you'd never watched his films and you just got clips, like, you'd be like, oh, okay, that has to be from the same director, right? You know, I mean, I think the the Tarantino um, cake, like if you were to make, make a cake of Tarantino, it'd be, you know, the ingredients would be like his his dialogue, the one take track shots, the trunk shots, the overhead bird's eye view shot, uh, the crash zoom, the best needle drops in cinema ever, obviously. And then like the frosting would be the over the top violence and then sprinkles could be the, the, the feet shots. I mean, you know, but yeah, I think that's, it's a mixture of a lot of great things, but I think the, the feet thing is not something that I really pay too much attention to. It's cool. I like the shots themselves. I'm not a foot person, you know, and I think he's even, I mean, you can argue that it's an excuse for a fetish or whatever, but he think he's even mentioned at some point that he likes the way like those shots are ang- like the angle of the those shots and stuff like that, which I 100% agree with. Whether that's a, a cover-up or not, that's uh, you know on him. But I, I agree with that. I like. I think it's it's not. I, I never see those shots, and I'm just like, oh, this guy really loves feet, huh? Like in a provocative way, you know. I see it as like, yeah, he likes 
those shots of feet, not necessarily like, you know, he likes those shots of feet. (laughs) 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 But yeah, I I think it's a mixture of a lot of things. And I think that's, that's at the bottom of the list for me, at least. Tim. Uh, So I never, yeah, I never, I was pretty much same here. I like, I never saw the feet thing until like Brad Pitt made the joke, like recently at the Oscars. Like that was the first time I was ever like, Oh, I guess I see it now. Like whatever. Um, And then of course, like the video went viral of the girl asking him to sign her foot, which I was like, you know, whatever but like I feel like anybody that's nice and like famous and would have done the, would have signed it too so it's like it doesn't necessarily you know solidify his foot footage but so no i i gotta agree like the gore is probably like the first thing that really ever stuck out to me and kind of stuck through his films but again you know i came in at kill bill which is like his goriest film and it just you know it amps up from there pretty much so uh that was something and then the music you know it's the gore and the music for me those two things are definitely like top two for what really uh sticks out in the tarantino film is like every single song every needle drop everything about you know everything with the music makes sense you know and uh sometimes it's you know from a score from a past film or it's you know just like an old song that he's you know definitely gonna shoot back up the charts you know very you know obviously not uh stranger things style but like very low-key it'll end up in the top 10 and you're like why the fuck is that song there you know what i mean so it's uh it's one of those things that it's uh super awesome just you know that he does two things that I think that's, you know, one of the reasons I love him so much is gore and music or, you know, horror flicks and guitar picks. That's the reason I do it. So it's just one of those things that's like perfect blend of the two. And it's just always stuck out in his films. And uh, yeah, I got to go with the feet thing being probably one of the bottom. Like it's at this point, because it's been pointed out, like I see it as a trope in his films. Like if he did a film with no feet, I'd be like, oh, shit. But it's uh, definitely not something I look for at all. I mean, I, I get some of the way people talk about it. But when you do a movie that you write called From Dust to Dawn and you suck on some hugs feet and have poor alcohol, like you're going to get a bit of like you may be a fit for this. You wrote the movie you wanted to star in it, and that's the role you took. I'm just like, I'm, like, I'm just, says. you know, making bring it to light. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but no, we're going to rob somebody, but you're going to suck on their feet. But, well, I mean, but we're going to rob somebody. So Mr. Elwood. Your take on this? Oh, well, Tarantino of Fate. I mean, it's basically a lot of directors all have their little quirks. Russ Myers, most legendary, is the most one we can draw the biggest comparison to. I mean, he obviously loved his ultra fictions, his bosomy ladies, as they feature throughout all his films, front and center. <laughs> and with Tarantino, I think we never really dawned on us until around Kill Bill 2 that he had a foot fetish. And it was an interview in like GQ or something that someone like called him out. It's like, dude, what's with the foot thing? And he's like, oh, yeah, I have a foot fetish. And they're have this really bizarre photoshoot with him and he's like tied up with rope with these two uh, Asian girls and he's got one of them's got his uh, foot in his mouth I'm sure there's a load of people like rushing to like eBay now going GQ Tarantino like buying <laughs> some poor guy who's like getting making pay dirt on his magazine collection now <laughs> but when it came to Death Proof it felt very much slow of like him giving us like the fingers of like oh yeah you want Miss Savy I've got a thing about Faith here they are motherfucker in front and center and with Death Proof is probably the most blatant use of feet because as you said before in Pulp and it's only this is something Kim pointed out to me I'd never noticed the feet in Pulp Fiction and that's how Mia Wallace is introduced and you start noticing it more when you're looking for the feet but with Death Proof and certainly when you get into <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the feet are like front they're front and center and the shot in that very voyeuristic lens especially when we get into the second group of girls and um, one of them is I think it's Mary Lewis with Winstead who's um, introduced feet first and you see it like zoom in and then Demo Mike comes on he's doing the little tickle on the feet and it's that playful <laughs> flirtatiousness with the feet but uh, yeah I think once it came out that feet were his thing he was and Tarantino being the sort of guy who can write his own checks feet were always going to be there in one way or another <laughs> whether we like it or not so 
joke all we want. Vita going to be something I can see as seeing in his films for years to come. His last film was going to be called Feet. That's what it's, just, that's it's just going to be like, uh, like that fun show where all the characters were fun, but <laughs> yeah. it's just going to be Feet. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, the one thing compare, you compare like Once Upon a Time and this one, I will say this about Death Proof. The feet in, the, in Death Proof, they're pristine. They're probably the most pristine feet we get in all the Tarantino-verse. They are clean, well manicured. They're pretty feet. Like, if, like, if you're a foot fetish person, these are the nicest feet. Like, in once upon a time, you're like, look at these hobos. What can wash your feet like such are the dirtiest feet you've ever seen? So on that note, we're going to put Mrs. Sin, since she's met all these famous people. She's so much better than us. <laughs> Who had the prettiest feet? In the film, I don't see feet as pretty whatsoever. So I mean, I. Oh, well, I'm not saying like you know, but I, I like get, I not, get I'm not saying attractive, but like whose feet you go? Oh, those are some clean looking, well kept feet. I think I I'm gonna say it's the opening shots. So I think that's Arlene's feet. Yes, butterfly. Yeah. Yes, Arlene. Um, I think probably her. She would probably top for sure, top uh, on the list of feet shots. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I'm more leaning just because I really like that shot. It's a really cool opening. Tim, your favorite feat in the film? Uh, I got to go with uh, Jungle Julia. Yeah, that would be my vote too. Arlene second. but So yeah. I I guess I would be lying if I said I'm not a foot person. Like, I don't think, like, like if I was walking past the girl and her feet were out, I'm not going to double take at her feet. You know what I mean? But, like, <laughs> <laughs> but like if, a, if somebody was like, what do you think of my feet? I'd be like, huh. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, it's one of those things that, uh, and it's also, like, you like you said, this is the first time where you, like, um, you know, you see a little bit of butt in it. So, like, uh, Jungle Julia is the only one that her feet, like, goes up to her butt in the movie. So, like, without anything. So it's kind of, like, adds a little bit more to it. You know what I mean? Like, when you see her feet, not just, like, with every other girl where it's, like, literally just feet on a dashboard. Board where it's like get some fucking dirty things off the dashboard like type thing you know what I mean? like <laughs> but uh and then the feet out the window that shit always i don't know that's just, i'm just like horror story waiting to happen if you ask me like chop your damn feet off and shit going down the road but uh so that's where uh those two get eliminated so yeah i gotta go with jungle julia especially i mean she's i mean they're all all the actresses in this film are gorgeous but she's just i don't know chef's kiss gorgeous Yes, and we'll get into them because they're just not beauty. It's also their personalities are just fucking electric. It's amazing. So, Elwood, top feet. Come on, we know you it's English a, like some feet. Oh yeah, it's, I don't. We didn't. I can't say we really think a lot about uh, ladies' feet. I think that's more our cousins over in like France, where they, they're very <laughs> all about drinking the bath water of women's feet. This like a whole you can read 18th century literature about how this is a right way. Just to the French being women. fucking and French. And it's like, yeah, of course it is, guys. <laughs> You think you think that's flowery, you can get away with anything. But oh god. No, it's it's so weird to like think about looking at women's feet, but Tarantino here does it because every other director is normally focusing on his lady's chestal area first, should we say. So it's kind of refreshing, I guess, but I guess Mary Elizabeth Winstead has got the nice his feet uh, for myself. And I think it's only on this viewing, I, when we see like the opening sort of toe tapping, that I noticed that they're not in rhythm with the music and it was just so off-putting once I noticed that the footage they shot is shorter than the music. So it's like they're looping it and it's not in time and they just like completely bugged me. So they lose points for that. Um, so yes, we're going merry. However, I think that was intentional. 
I do believe that was intentional, okay. given that we were watching. Oh, well, yeah, that's part of the, the probably where the separation is. That Grindhouse experience is it's that this movie's been played a thousand times and it's been cut and like like half the crap like or it was really quickly edited and the person who's editing like someone's uncle who said he knew how to edit. You know what I mean? It's like now people are like oh, yeah, my my son has a YouTube channel. You're like fuck you, your son's a YouTube channel. What does he know about film? You know what I mean? But so it's like that kind of person who's like yeah, I'll throw it together and they didn't know how to edit to music. So that whole first section of the film is intentionally designed the way that is but yes i know exactly what you mean with that little toe tap i love the fight flashes up with the original title card and it cuts to death proof in like the stock card so it's like thunderbolt and then it's like cuts like almost immediately to death proof <laughs> and just like someone hand wrote yeah, it's just like too, a like, card. thunderbolt's gorgeous like uh, death proof <laughs> it's like an afterthought <laughs> Sin or Tim, you said something about the dialogue. To me, I mean, look, we all know that Tarantino's a master of dialogue. That's undisputed. I find his best scenes to be either around the dinner table or a table where they're having a meal. He doesn't necessarily have to be like a diner, but or in cars. I really do believe the two car scenes we get with the girls here are maybe his two best, at least car dialogue scenes. Like, I'm sucked in. I could have watched another 30 minutes of them having these discussions. Like, I really could have watched another 30 minutes each of them having these amazing discussions. Now, I think this is also a female hangout movie. Like, I feel like, you know, like people are like, oh, I love Once Upon a Time. Like, oh, it's a hangout movie. Like, well, isn't death proof? Like, we hang out with characters and then a couple get their (laughs) fucking body parts destroyed. We hang out with some characters, they decide to do a stupid stunt and they beat the fuck out of it. Like, we literally hang out with these girls and for us guys, this is really like, we are flying the wall in in this scenario. Like, we don't usually get an opportunity to hear girl talk. Like, you know, we don't get girl talk. Girls don't let them their guard down normally around us, especially, you know, unless you've known them for a long time, but they still don't want to talk about, like, guys, we can be pigs, but I don't even think guys talk like they do in front of the buddies like they would in front of girls, but girls seem to have such a better... (laughs) vernacular not just being disgusting like can actually have a conversation you're like wow this is really good as opposed to guys like did you fuck her like that's that's how a conversation with the guy starts a girl they go into ooh, who's got the onset romances and you're like god damn it they're like talking in like 18th century english literature and we're like hey (laughs) like a bunch of truck stop idiots fucking when we talk so which part of this film was your favorite of the car scenes the first one we get jungle julia and we learn about the thing and what guys do or don't like the thing or when we get to kind of listen to Abernathy's non-sex life and being made fun of on screen. And I will start with you, Tim, because of course, who better to talk about what girls talk about than men? We should just talk about what we think is the best. We'll just mansplain this for all you ladies out there, what we think is the best thing you talk about. Now, which one is your favorite actual uh, scene from this movie? Now, uh, for me, it is the second. So are we talking about the, out of the two car scenes or just favorite scene in general? Yeah, no, out of, out of yeah. the two car scenes, out of our, you know, we it's basically we get to meet the yeah. girls. Like, we really get to know these girls now and, and get a whole new look at being in the girls like what what girl talks yeah. about for, especially for males never never been a part of it before so for me it's definitely the second one so they both have like different dynamics because like the first one has like the we grew up together dynamic and the second one has like we work together on something and like come together in a different way you know like shared interest type thing and uh i think i prefer that one because i don't know jungle julia just kind of comes like i know i've said that you know i like her and stuff like that but she also comes kind of comes off as a bitch to her friends at times and it's just like it can be kind of like put offing i know it's not a word but i'm making it one for today and uh, so it, it, i don't know it just makes the character like a little bit unlikable like uh i like 
you know, Arlene or Butterfly. Uh, and then uh, I wish I could remember the, oh, uh, Shana Banana. It's easy to remember because, yeah. So, Shana yeah, Banana. So I like, uh, and I really like Shana, you know, like her, her dialogue is some of the funniest in the film. You know, she's probably like, in my opinion, the Kim of, you know, the first half as far as like just having like the funny ass lines and stuff like that. But it's just something about every time Julia, you know, chimes in, it's just like she's almost shutting her friends down. So where in the second one, it's almost like they're all just having such a fun time talking to each other. Uh, even though they're kind of like poking fun at Abernathy, they're not necessarily doing it in a way that's like, you know, seems mean. It's almost kind of like, you know, like girls just talking about like what's actually happening, you know, and like it's girl ball yeah, and her situation is just funny to them, you know? So it's like, uh, it's obviously that they have sympathy for them to where, you know, like jungle Julia is just like, like, I'm not, it's not my job to supply you guys with fucking weed, you know, like every time we hang out and shit like that. And it's like, sometimes you just have that one friend that always has weed. Like, why are you being a bitch about it? Like, <laughs> so I don't know. I just, uh, it's one of those things where, uh, I definitely enjoy the second, second car ride more and, uh, it's funnier um, I will say that that was another thing that kind of came up. I feel like the first one is shorter in the Grindhouse version. And when I watched it the first time, I was like, this first one doesn't even feel like a fucking Tarantino scene almost. It was so short. But then they, I feel like they stretched it only like a few minutes in the second one, but it just adds just enough to kind of uh, yes. make it a little bit better. But uh, it still wasn't enough to top the second one for sure. But I do want to point out they changed a line in the extended scene that I don't like that they change. So there's a scene where she says in the Grindhouse version, the line is funnier than the, the extended version. So pretty much she says, so you're not sucking them, fucking them, or blah, 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 blah. And in the the extended cut, she says something along the lines of like, don't talk about my sex life. And she's like, we're not talking about your sex life. We're talking about uh, Cecil's sex life and your lack of sex life. I thought the line was funnier in the Grindhouse version where she says, you're not sucking them, fucking them, or blah, blah, blah. She's like, in some countries, they would say he make he's making a smart decision or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> or some cultures would say he's making the smarter decision or whatever. So, but other than that, that was like literally the only line I felt like it was even changed in the whole movie. But uh, I really, yeah, the second one just hands down. Mr. Jones. Yeah, definitely with the second one. The main problem I have with the first group is Jungle Julia, who is just basically a poor man's Pam Grier. And Tarantino is trying to write this role for Sidney Poitier's daughter that she's going to be this Pam Grier, but we've seen it before with Beyonce in the third Austin Powers movie, where she was Foxy Brown, I want to say. Foxy Cleopatra, one of the two. And she was again trying to do the Pam Grier thing, and it's sort of like you can't replicate what the the black exploitation queens were doing um, of that era because a lot of these women are drawing from the areas that they came from, the life experience, and they got this edge to them. And certainly with Pam Greer, is she said when she saw Reservoir Dogs, it's all like, I know what that is. Those are like the junkyard dogs who are like store the food and stuff. So it's uh, see him try. I mean, he takes a gant effort to try and turn this character, and in many ways, it does pay off because we see that hard edge to it, and then we see that she's really got this soft edge when she's doing the text messages back and forth but the second group of girls are just so much more fun and it's all like they're the girls i want to sort of like hang out with and they have like the fun banter it's sort of like yeah we did i was into like getting movies i like pretty in pink but i also like vanishing point and i like cars and i can it's all like saying yes i can be a girl and i can like cars and like all these sort of tomboyish things and at the same time i can also have be into like girl things such as like you know jack daniels and pretty in pink and and stuff so they're just a much more fun group even though there are characters i like in the first group 
it's just the jungle judo sort of overpowers every scene she's in by just like wanting to be the center to be the ringleader of this group and that's why she was thought they were just sort of less, less fun to see even though there is some fun banter like when she's talking about making out on the couch and it's like as you said before we guys don't have these sort of conversations about oh we started off and standing up and then we moved onto the couch and i was struggling him. we don't get into those sort of details because we're too busy trying to get onto the next thing we're just waiting for our moment to show chime in with our nonsense so it's uh kind of fun and as someone who like most of my social circle were sort of girls and stuff so it was nice to hear that sort of dialogue and Tarantino was like saying when he was writing Death Proof that he would have his like female friends come around and then watch American Idol and he would like listen in their conversations and sort of like use it to workshop <laughs> his dialogue and I think to myself it sounds very realistic but obviously I'm talking from the male perspective and i'm sure like sin is gonna say no this is completely unrealistic dialogue and we don't talk like this at all it's a male fantasy <laughs> even if it's just a male fantasy i enjoy the the change of pace and having just groups of girls talking rather than just sort of like the token female in a group of guys so mr electric <laughs> here you go the, the, the female voice i i <laughs> which which scene did you like the most? And, you know, I, was it realistic? Um, I had Miss Sam Aversa on the actual Death Proof episode. Uh, she was a big fan of it. But that doesn't mean that just because one female liked it, that means all female liked it. Like we're not going to do the box thing. So how do you feel about these scenes? And which one is your favorite? I think I'm about to agree with uh, everybody else that it's a, it, the second group of girls is definitely my favorite. I think there's a lot of reasoning behind that where it's not just so much that I feel like, yeah, the, the, the dialogue is a lot better i think it's more re relatable it's also relatable to me because i i don't have like a group of girlfriends or anything like that that i talk to i've never been that type of person that would hang out with oh, who kissed who like kind of thing like i've always hung out with nothing but guys and <laughs> even in my band it's nothing but guys so i did get those conversations of like oh i fucked this girl blah 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 like stuff like that and you know i would you know chime in and like, you would laugh about it or whatever i was like you know one of the guys like you, we would just talk like that so and i also grew up you know talking about like uh action scenes in movies and cars and this and that and and so I'm, I relate a lot better to the second group because it feels more real to me in my own personal experiences. So I enjoy it a little bit better versus this, the first group where it's it's funny banter. It's funny, like little roasting things here and there. And I, I still enjoy it. But when the second group starts talking and they really <laughs> they really burn Abernathy, it's like the funniest like scene in that movie. I'm just like cracking up and just like it's cool seeing their, their dynamic. They're they have a little bit better chemistry for sure than the first group. I do enjoy both groups, but the second one takes the cake for sure. I agree. And I will just put this out there. So uh, I do believe the reason that we are hating the first group is we are supposed to hate the first group. We are supposed to root for them to die. It's the old adage from horror films. That's why we were upset that the guys didn't die is you root for the villain. And you're like, fuck those girls. So when they kind of get run over by the car, you're kind of like, yeah, they fucking deserve it. Fuck these bitches. But when we f like the second group and then they go after Mike, we're kind of like, I hope they kill this motherfucker. Like, we go from being like, yeah, Stuntman Mike, he's the fucking man, to Austin, like, fuck Stuntman Mike. I hope they fucking tap that ass. I hope they fuck this dude up. And that's just a great turn of a writer because, one, if he gets the kind of reaction from us that we're like, man, these first few girls, I fucking hate them. Such fucking little hoity-toity, stuck up. Oh, just not nice people. And then you get these other group, and you're like, when he touches 
touches your feet. You're like, what the fuck? And then you're just like, who's this dude's a creep? You know, you really want Mike to die. So a little nod to Tarantino. He did it intentionally. So he he definitely pulled the right strings for all of us to us get to not like the one group and then like the other. So I'll go back to you, Tim. And what was your favorite line of dialogue or monologue from this film? For me, the my favorite uh, dialogue is like, uh, it's pretty much two uh, back and forth between Abernathy and Kim. And so Kim admits that she has a Roscoe to uh, Zoe. And of course, you know, Abernathy doesn't approve. So uh, Abernathy says, you know, why don't you have pepper spray? And she's like, if a motherfucker tries to rape, I'm of course going to change a word here for a reason. But uh, she says, if a motherfucker tries to rape me, I don't want to give him a skin rash. She's like, I want to kill him. Uh, what she say? I want to, uh, I want to drop that motherfucker. And then the very next line, she's like, well, why don't you carry a knife? She's like, you know what happens to motherfuckers that carry knives? They get shot. And then that's, that's not fair. Uh, I was just like right there embodies the character you know like everybody says she's like a female samuel jackson which i kind of 100 agree yeah i can see that for sure uh she fucking just kills it like that whole role you know so i just the that line is awesome so it's i don't know it's just the like perfect example of you know like them being two friends because they seem like probably the longest friends out of the four you know like them th- yes. them two seem like that like they met first and then they met zoe then they met mary it just seems like the perfect example of like two opposites that like two opposites attract, you know what I mean? Like one that's like guns are bad and one that's like, fuck that. Like, you know, like we need this shit. So, <laughs> nah, I just, uh, I love the, you know, the showing of the uh, difference between the two characters as well as, you know, just being funny as shit. So Mr. Jones, favorite line of dialogue or monologue in this motherfucking film. Oh my God. My favorite line of dialogue in this is such throwaway line. And that's where Stumber Mike goes, I got into the same way that a lot of people get into the business through family. And it's like, who did you got it? Who was it? And it's like, that'd be my brother, Stumman Bob. <laughs> and, <I just laughs> and the other dialogue I really love comes from Marcy, who is such a throwaway character and she's so underused. And now Marcy, when she's doing the chat up lines and she's got there with the margaritas and she's like doing the, the deep Southern cowboy voice and stuff. It's <laughs> like, Hey, the butterfly. And it's like, <laughs> she can do no wrong. I just wish she would like gone onto the bar rather than just be this sort of throwaway character. Yeah. Um, but no, I really hope that uh, Marcy Harrell turns up in more Tarantino movies and, if I could like adopt an actress, she's gonna be like on my list of actresses to adopt. I just like wish her nothing <laughs> but the best from this wonderful, uh, wonderful being. But someone uh, might talk about his brother, Stuntman Bob. It just every time I hear that light just cracks me up for some reason. <laughs> it is disappointing these ladies didn't go on to more. Like they're so powerhouse in this. Outside of Zoe, I mean, outside of Zoe Bob, so we know she goes on to more. But I'm blown away with some of their performance. I'm like, like Tracy Thomas, like we're talking about. Why does she not move on to more? But Miss Electric, favorite line of dialogue or monologue or both, whatever. There are few things fetching as a bruised ego on a beautiful angel. That line is awesome. I love that line. Smoothest fucking pickup line I've ever heard. so many good one-liners, but that's the line that disarms her, you know? And eventually leads to the lap dance. But man, that guy is smooth. I mean, he is so freaking cool. And I don't think she expected that. I don't think she expected him to to be that smooth and to, you know, suddenly she had her guard down, you know, and that, that line is so, so perfect. So beautiful. So beautifully said as well. Like the way he says it is just, oh, it's so good. <laughs> 
Mrs. Aversa said the same thing. And as we're recording this, Death Proof is out right now. So that's the stuff that's out right now. But yeah, if you go back to her episode, she said the same thing. That Mike, it's the sm- he's the smoothest butter. That's the smoothest shit ever. You're just like, God damn. I wish I wish that was a line you could use. Like, you can't just go up to a girl like now and just say that. You'd be like, you creep. She had to really be upset. But anybody out there, if you're trying to pick up a, a female and she's a little depressed, try that little try that line. But you got to be smooth. And maybe have a scar. You know, you never know. A scar might help, too. <laughs> have you been following us? No. That's what I love about Austin. It's just so damn small. You've seen us go before? I saw him outside of Guero's. And I saw you outside Guero's, too. You saw my car. I saw your legs. Now, look, I ain't stalking y'all, but I didn't say it wasn't a wolf. So you really weren't following us? I'm not following you, Butterfly. I just got lucky. So, how about that lap dance? Sorry, it was a one-time only offer and she did it earlier this evening at Anton's. No, she didn't. How do you know? I'm good that way. And you look a little too shade. What's too shade? Wounded slightly. Why should I be wounded? Because you expected guys to be pestering you all night, but from your look I can tell nobody pestered you at all. That kind of hurt your feelings a little bit, didn't it? There are a few things as fetching as a bruised ego on a beautiful angel. You know, I don't know how old uh, what is, but I, maybe the elder statesman here is I actually remember Pulp Fiction coming out. I was 18, so that puts me a little older than most of you. But Kill Bill seems to be that film for the next generation, right? So anyone born maybe late 80s, early 90s, didn't get to see Pulp Fiction, maybe wasn't your stepstone or your touchstone for him, that Kill Bill seems to have been that next film that people were like, holy shit, it kind of brought people to the party. In that film, he started genre blending. He, he was the first to like really, you know, or we really noticed it. You know, most people stuck to one genre of a film. You know, if you saw a crime film, it was pretty much a crime film. Very rarely was it anything else. Obviously, outside of the surprise of From Dust Till Dawn, which, again, I saw in the theaters. You guys probably saw in DVD. Um, but, yeah, you go, oh, it's going to be another crime movie. And all of a sudden, you're like, are these motherfucking vampires? <laughs> it's like, almost like, it's almost like uh, uh, Samuel Jackson, like motherfucking snakes on a plane. It's like, motherfucking vampires in a bar? You didn't see it coming. So in this film, he really is able to blend, and he does it in two different films. Like I, it's, This is really two films. Our first half, we get a full-on slasher film. And in the second half, it turns into a car chase movie, right? So like it really does blend, but beautifully. Like Yeah, even visually you can see it, because like in the first half, as I talked about in the main podcast of this, he really goes in for the grindhouse effect. We're scratching prints. We're making pop sounds of audio being bad. We're having bad jump cuts. Scenes are restarting. Uh, in the scene that Elwood uh, just talked about with that young lady when she's doing the whole butterfly thing there's a moment where the dolly backs up and hits a table you see it jerk and you hear the sound and you see it go forward all intentional stuff that tarantino is doing to relive the grindhouse experience of what he remembered as a kid second half of the movie not as much of that we really only get it towards the end of in the last fight so a lot of it is really you know just kind of intense so my question for you all is do you feel he was successful in blending both of these together and which half of the film do you prefer do you prefer his first half of his slasher film that he uses the car or do you prefer that car chase movie i guess this is we're going to separate i already kind of have an idea where tim might go the horror fans from the car fans so we will start with elwood because tim you went first last so we're 
back in that roulette. So, Elwood, which half do you prefer more, our slasher or our car? And do you think he was able to combine them in a great way in this film? Oh, I definitely feel that the two films are combined almost flawlessly together. It does feel because of the the ammo of, of Stumman Mike, he wants to set up big, elaborate stunt sequences for his kills. So that's a really good glue to bind these two scenes together. And yes, obviously the first one plays more to a slasher. Second one is more towards the castloitation genre. But it's not a noticeable sort of shift. It's not like when you look at Kill Bill 1 and 2 where you have the Eastern and the Western. The two very different films sort of joined together with that connective tissue revenge. With this film, it's very much that the genres he's blending are, are they're so similar to each other, as I said, because they're all very sort of grind toys, the exploitation genres. So that's why they easy to sort of blend in together. And he's obviously seen enough expo- exploitation movies to see how you can blend a car chase into anything. But for myself, I always lean more into that second one. And it's going to keep coming back to the fact that the second group are just a more enjoyable group to be around. And as I said, I don't, it's not like I watched like half the movie and just sort of cut out that first bit because I still need all the scenes at the bar. I need all the introduction of Stuntman Michael, the good things from that first group. But um, certainly the second scene is where I sort of lean into more, and it just purely comes down to this group and more fun to be around. They're more cohesive as a, a unit. They have banter back and forth is more polished. And even like the little throwaway bits, like when they bribe the guy to steal his car and they like, uh, they drop uh, Mayor Winston's character off and it's sort of like, and he's still like, oh, is it like porno? It's like, yes, it is. <laughs> and it's just, which is a shitty <laughs> thing to do to like say that your friend's a porn star and then leave him with some hillbilly. Much less the uh, the guy who played Buck who likes to fuck in Kill Bill Volume 1. So for all we know, it could also be Buck from <laughs> that uh, she's just been left with. So the second half of the film is just, everything comes together. It feels like part one is like the test run and like two is sort of like the movie he wanted to make. And um, you're just seeing him firing on all cylinders really. He's just in his element in that second half. Miss Electric. Um, I preferred the second half for sure, but I also always look back on the slasher one because I really, really like when they all get mutilated. <laughs> it's such a, it's such a cool <laughs> freaking scene. Like I love that scene so much. It's so gruesome. I I remember seeing it in theaters. I was like, oh my god, this is cool. But the, but the second scene is like you, it has you on the edge of your seat, you know. And there's so much cool stuff that that happens in between as well. It's not just a car chase scene. It's also the funny dialogue with Kim. You know, it's the even when Zoe you know pops out of the of the the bushes or wherever she sat, and you know, there's still that humor that tarantino humor in the midst of violence you know like it it still has all that stuff but i think he he seamlessly blended blended the two i think he did what he does best and that's you know stealing for lack of better words stealing things from other films where people who are fans of slasher films or or um car chase films make it makes them feel like it's like watching those types of films for the first time again maybe and for people who maybe aren't into it, it is their first time watching it, and it is could be you know super exciting for them. It's kind of like you know when you when you mix a where you sample a song um, or or do a remix of a song from like the eighties and nineties, and then you you know it, it it becomes something super super popular in twenty twenty two. Like I feel like that's what it's like. It's just people who understand where he's coming from when grabbing all those different genres and mixing it into one thing is really fucking cool. And then it's super cool for the new for the newcomers like it's 
I think he did a fantastic job. I, I absolutely loved it for sure. It's a trash mouth. Uh, so like you said, uh, first to answer the first question, he definitely blended it perfectly. Uh, you know, he does the things in the first half that you're supposed to do, make you, you know, dislike the characters. You fucking hate the guys. There's nothing redeemable about any, any of them, but Omar, because he literally <laughs> doesn't speak. And then like, uh, the rest of the and then like you kind of dislike julia which you don't like you don't dislike her group of friends but it kind of makes you like generally just like the whole group just because she's so like bossy and shitty to her friends she's kind of a bully to rose mcgowan's character uh she talks shit on stuntman mike the whole time even when like he's being like sweet to butterfly you know not sweet but you know it depends on how you look at it, it can be sweet creepy whatever but when he's talking to a butterfly and it's just like uh so it does like all the things that you're supposed to do there you know with the you know teasing the car as the murder weapon um, and then in the second half, he does everything you're supposed to do with like, you know, uh, you know, hyping up the, you know, the cars themselves and then finally doing a chase and then putting in shit like running through a boat and fucking randomly flying a guy from a motorcycle into a fruit stand <laughs> and shit like that. that just makes you like, this is a car movie, you know, from the seventies. And it's so stuff like that's super fun. Um, and there's so much to like about the second half. Like I love the, you know, that they get their revenge and I like those characters more and like overall with the whole movie put together, like the second half is amazing, but uh, I think you nailed it on the head. The horror in the first half is my favorite half. And it's mostly because if you ended the movie after that first half, I'd still be fine. I'd be like, that was a fucking great horror movie. I've never seen a group of girls or it doesn't have to be girls, but you know, I'm just saying I've never seen a group of people get fucking just slaughtered by a car to where in the second half, I've seen plenty of, re you know, revenge movies. I've seen plenty of people get their revenge after somebody's come after them. I've seen people get the one up ins. Uh, the one thing I like about this, you know, to where, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's a female group getting their uh come up and on a uh, male without it being you know they didn't have to get raped first so that's one thing about the problem with like most 70s like i spent in your grave last house on your left like literally every like uh even the hills have eyes like has like a you know a rape scene in that like all that shit it's like those are some of the top like 70s movies where you know females are empowered but it's like they finally get empowered without having to get fucked with first so it's like uh that's one thing i really like about the second half and like but i feel like that second half uh, only even has like a lingering like sense because of that first half. So like, uh, if you didn't see that first like car accident, like you don't like it just makes a horror linger over the second half. So second half is a car exploitation film, but it's almost like still horror because of the lingering of like, oh fuck, you know something Mike's coming after him. To where the second, the first half, it's like you still don't know what it's building to. So the the climax of the second, the first half is the reason I definitely would go with the first half. No, I, I would agree because that second half, when I first saw the film and Zoe goes off the car, I thought, oh, fuck, she's dead. And I thought, oh, we're, he's going one by one now. Like, he's, like, yeah. going to pick them off now. Like, he's not just killing all of them once. When it turns on him and, you, and he becomes a bitch, you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. You know what I mean? So I agree with you. Um, the second half of the film, for me, could have been, a, it feels like a Tarantino film. It feels like it's got the beats of a regular Tarantino film. What I loved about the first is, I've never seen him do horror before, and I thought he did an amazing job turning a yeah. slasher film with a car. And he took Jason, Freddy, well not Freddy, because Freddy's always very charismatic, but Jason and the Michael Myers character, and we sat with him. We we actually met him. Normally he's out, like the car, like because the car is the knife, but the car is out lingering. But for the most time, it's like, that motherfucker, like he's sitting, like you're like, he's right there. You know what I mean? Like it'd be like me telling you, like the pumpkin behind you. you it's like, he's fucking right behind you. <laughs> like we have to sit there and watch him. I know exactly, right? He gets a lap dance. You're like, Mike's not such a bad guy. And then he gives us that fourth wall break and you're like, alright, alright, shit's about to go bad. So I I'm in agreement with you. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. And I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Did you hear me, butterfly? Miles to go. 
before you sleep. Sorry, stuntman Bert. Mike. Mike. Shirley broke off that dance. Is that true? Did I miss my chance? Do I frighten you? Is it my scar? car speaking of violence to me this is what trope that i think tarantino is it's always the sudden and graphic violence now he's got violence where it's just like you know like in, in glorious bastards or even in Django and chain where you just sometimes i don't want to say it's comedic but you're like okay we know it's coming like it's brutal but it's those i shot marvin in the face or lewis shoots what's melanie and you're like what the fuck you know like there's these moments in glorious bastards when you think okay we just got through the louisiana tavern scene wilhelm's gonna go home and see his kid Nope, Von Hammersmark shoots that motherfucker. Or, oh, he's choking Von Hammersmark to death. Like, it's these quick moments of, like, or very brutal moments of violence, this car scene. So, people have said that Tarantino, you know, all he can do is violence. And I think Jackie Brown was his, oh, you think I do violence? Watch this. And I've said, and, well, you haven't heard it yet, but the people who are listening have heard this. But in Glorious Bastards, I feel some of his most brutal violence is intentional. And a lot of times it's to people who are shitty, except for these poor girls in this first scene. But, like, when he obliterates Hitler, he's just obliterating these rednecks in the South. You know, like, he picks certain people that deserve it, and he will obliterate them. So, like, when he does it in Once Upon a Time, yes, they're females. But they're the Manson family, and and not his version. They cut the baby out and kill this lady in the baby. Like, they do horrific things. So her getting her face put into the thing is just kind of like his version of saying, you fucked my childhood up. Your face is going into the fucking thing for this. I'm setting on fire with a flamethrower. So some of his brutal violence is intentional towards people. How do you feel about his violence? I mean, I kind of know how you feel about it, but do you think people make too big of a deal about the graphic nature of his violence? And do you think that they're a necessary plot point? Or do you think that what I would be saying, like, oh, he just he just used it. That's his his fallback is is to use his violence. Um, I think it makes up, like I said before, it makes it's like one of the ingredients for his films. However, like you said, with Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown is a true example of the fact that he can still make a really great film with putting the most minimal violence like ever. You know, I mean, I think. What does he just shoots Chris Tucker's character? You don't really see it. It's kind of off screen. Technically, no one dies on screen. Like the actual kill shots are not shown on screen for all four deaths. Yeah. So, I mean, he could make these movies without any violence or toned down violence. Sure. I mean, of course he could. But it's not going to be the best time you have at the movies ever. You know, it's not. And like to to quote him from that interview that he did for many people, if anybody remembers that quote, because it's just so damn fun. You know, it's just so fun. You know, it's it just is like that's one of the things that I really enjoy about his films. When what other movie do you watch when somebody's getting murdered or something and you're laughing? You know, when you a time in Hollywood when he when Leo DiCaprio brings out that flamethrower, I am. Like my side is hurting at how funny that scene is to me, and just her screaming—it's <laughs> just, <laughs> just so funny. Like it just is, and I mean, maybe some people out there think think it's serious and are like horrified, but I mean, I know I'm not the only one. I mean, I've seen it in theaters with a bunch of other fans, and the laughter is just filled, like filled the room. It's just, it's just fun. I don't think it's overdone. I think it's it's one of his one of the things that he's kind of known for. He, does he absolutely need it? I mean, Jackie likes the Jackie Brown. I mean, is a good example of the fact that I guess he doesn't really need it. But 
it's fun. That's just it. It's just it's just a good time at the movies for sure. I agree. And she was screaming a lot, so I was glad he lit her on fire. Because at that point, I was like, like if she's she, she's got to drown her or something. Because this she just won't shut the fuck up. <laughs> Tim, how do you feel? No, I agree hundred uh, percent. I feel like he doesn't need to do it, but at the same time, I feel like it's necessary to like for just a fun time at the movies. Like uh, the other day, I was just kind of flipping through YouTube and every you know, like I don't know what's up with YouTube suggestions, but they're a pile of shit. But that's a whole other story. But either way. <laughs> Uh, they suggested me a scene from the movie Braveheart. Like, that's exactly what I mean. Like, I don't know why, but they suggested me a scene from the movie Braveheart, and I was like, I haven't seen Braveheart since I was... Maybe it's taking a picture of what you look like. You look like you would be <laughs> running across the field of Braveheart, to be They're honest like with Scottish you. Scottish-looking motherfucker. But, no, they only... Uh, <laughs> so, no, I had my kilt on that day, so that has something to do with it, I'm sure. But, uh, no, but they said, so they, uh, uh, I watched a scene just because I was like, I haven't seen Braveheart since I was a kid. Like, let me see, you know, like, just let me see. And he chops a dude's arm off, chops a dude's leg off. It's a fucking cool scene no blood not a single drop of blood the whole time and i'm like dude if this was tarantino that shit would have came spraying out like fucking uh insane clown posse <laughs> shooting fago at the crowd like i don't know what to, like that shit would have been like everywhere it would have been like a kid with a brand new super soaker on christmas like i just don't understand why people feel like they need to cut out blood i watched this movie uh a year or two ago called um one hour or no i want to say one hour photo but that's that really good robin williams movie it was something about a photo Thing. It was on Netflix. Uh, Netflix. <laughs> and it was pretty much a movie about a girl who had a camera and she would take pictures of people. She found a camera, like an ancient camera, and she'd take pictures and the picture would kill people. Uh, long story short, Frank Langella was in the movie, you know, played Dracula, legend of an actor. You know, like the movie actually had a solid story, but there's a part where somebody rips his picture and his character rips in half and they literally put no blood in it to keep the movie PG-13. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, this is exactly why movies need blood. It's just like sometimes you watch something and it's almost like watching something with CGI instead of practical effects it just sometimes it's just at the worst time it can just take you out of a film and it can definitely drop a film down like a rating scale a couple points you know what i mean so you know zoe bell uh we mentioned earlier how we wish they did more things she popped up recently in that film uh malignant which i really loved that film she just popped up real quick as like a character that gets like annihilated pretty much but it was just coded in cgi and it kind of takes you out of the film and um it's just one of those things that i'm just like you know which takes you back to you know why his violence is so great because he also does it in a practical way he doesn't do it you know cgi so i think him doing it practical and then sometimes being over the top feels more realistic than being like underwhelming you know what i mean because like yeah you could have mm -hmm. like he could have the whole crazy eight scene where she's chopping bodies and shit like that and you know the blood's just kind of like pouring out you know it's and stuff like that but it's like like would it really do the justice that it you know it does now with like the fucking like fire extinguisher worth the fucking because that's what they used to like shoot that shit was a yeah. fire extinguisher it's like <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like we said, I think even his violence, as we're talking about it, his violence is predicated on what the genres he's doing. So if he's doing Kill Bill and he's doing a homage to Asian cinema, there's going to be some fucking blood spurts. Yeah. There's more blood spurt in the in the anime section when she stabs what's his name in the in the chest and her, she's cold like her, her fucking silhouettes in the wall. There's so much blood coming out. He has more blood coming out of him than's in the human body, and he does it with Django. But like when we get to like with Pulp Fiction, it's not too much. If you shoot a person in the head at close range, there's be a lot of blood and brains all over you yeah. you know so i think he knows the moments when to go big and the moments when it it's more shocking when it's not big so in that car crash like the practical effects of the leg and then like uh butterfly's face like that shit right there shows why the <sighs> violence matters like that shit right there is like i shouldn't be watching this but i can't look away like it's the, i it's yes it's the car wreck. wreck that you slow down to look at and you're hoping you're like i hope everyone's okay but you're kind of like i hope they're not i hope i see some skull you know what i mean yeah. it's that or maybe it's just tarantino fans who feel that way mr jones 
your your feeling on this? I think you hit it right on the right on the head there when you said that it depends on what genre he's doing as the levels of violence that we get. Obviously, with Kill Bill, we have the homage to the plot samurai movies, so we get the hosepipes of blood, the Monty Python style Black Knight sprays of blood. Um, <laughs> when we look at like Pulp Fiction and Best of Our Dogs, the crime films, so the blood is more those scenes of violence are sort of or more within the sort of setting. And again, with his Westerns, he's drawing comparison, he's drawing like inspiration from spaghetti Westerns, in particular like uh, Kabuchi. And those are like really grimy, bloody Westerns. And that's why he's paying homage. And with this film, it's, he's truly, he's obviously going, wants to make an exploitation movie. So he's going to go hard with the violence and the gore. And he's one of those few directors because he's got name recognition. And as he says before, it's sort of like, you don't go to a Metallica concert and attempt to turn it down. <laughs> Just going to bring that quote up yep <laughs> people go to a tarantino movie they know there's going to be profanity there's going to be violence there's going to be him scrapbooking ideas together there's things we have come to accept from tarantino and the censors accept from tarantino so he gets away with a, a lot just because of we know what his work is and i think certainly when it came to death proof it's very fitting of the exploitation style and i as tim mentioned already it's great he's using practical effects and i was watching the sadness the other day and I was reminded, because that's 99% practical and like 1% CGI. And I was just reminded sort of like, this is so much better. We're seeing everything on the screen. We're seeing blood spurts. And I know a lot of filmmakers like say, oh, I use CGI because it hasn't got like the turnaround times quicker when you're doing setups for scene. And I'm thinking, why was the audience have to suffer because of your time-saving methods? And there are directors out there like Del Toro, like Tarantino, who do still do practical effects. And the difference is just incomparable when you see something actually on the screen it's just got so much more presence to it than if you see a cgi and i hate cgi blood it's like one of the most annoying things ever and squibs are so easy to do why are we doing cgi blood if only <laughs> to save people time but no i as i said when it came to came to death proof and especially that first death and we don't see the crash once we see it for eight of these victims in it so we see jungle julia like lose her leg and you know that's in tarantino's prop closet somewhere um and then we get to see like the tyrant like scar up the face and it's like the most likable character who has the worst death in this movie so yeah that when you see that big that car smash and he's building up to it and it's all like you're like you're almost again the same sort of excitement stuff when mike is from this like kill he's going to do it's like i want to see these car crash like so bad <laughs> and when it's like hits that payoff it's like a big release um and i think that's what tarantino does so well with his his films and it's as you say it's all dependent on the genre and he knows how far he can push violence within the genre like if you're watching something like Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs you don't want the big arterial splits and when we have the big moments of violence such as like the ear slicing or Marvin getting his head blown off it has more impact because it's so unexpected whereas when you watch like Inglorious Bastards the like Jewish revenge movie that it is. It's like, yes, we're going to machine gun Hitler. We're going to gun his <laughs> face down because he's like the ultimate evil here. And even like Christoph Waltz, like the Jew hunter, it's sort of like, we can't give him like gun down. So we need him to like have a fitting one because we know he's going to like talk his way out of any situation. So we'll carve the swastika in his head. That's going to be like the fitting punishment for him. And I think with every one of his films, he just knows the right beats to hit with those violence. And you see it again, Kill Bill 1 and 2. Like, Kill Bill 1 is a lot more violent than Kill Bill 2. Uh, Kill Bill 2, we get, like, a couple of bits. We get, like, the eye-squashing scene. We get the uh, rock salt to the chest. 
we get the buried alive sequence, which actually made Michael Madsen physically ill because he doesn't like physical violence. He's uh, very anti-violence, which is weird seeing the zombies. <laughs> he films, he's the like violent violence. guys. I know. <laughs> and it's funny when you mentioned like before, like Mr. Blonde. Whenever I see him, I just want to call him the cow puncher. That's the coolest <laughs> nickname everyone will ever have in a film. But uh, yeah, I think the violence is very sort of fitting of this film, and it, it only adds to the film because the whole way we're waiting for like the big payoff, and then when we get it, it's just delivers. And it's like that perfect bookend to that chapter. In the words of Tarantino himself, Kill Bill's a violent movie, but it's a Tarantino movie. You don't go see Metallica and ask the fuckers to turn the music down. So <laughs> there you go. Perfect. The two climactic sequences. They both end very surprisingly. We get the amazing car crash. where We see leg come off. A girl get catapulted out the window and a face ripped off. And then we get to watch Stuntman Mike get his ass whooped. And then Abernathy dropped the leg drops of all leg drops and crave his skull in. One, how she got her her leg goes up. It feels like it goes behind her head. It gets up so high and it comes down. How did you guys feel when you saw that? Uh, definitely when I saw um, Arlene get her facelift was was pretty awesome. That's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> uh, that was sick. I mean, the, the, the leg on the wet asphalt, just the way that it wobbles on the floor, it just looks so cool. But then it punches you with that tire on Arlene's face and the way that it just stretches all the way back, it just looks so sick. I like... Oh my god! I remember seeing that. I was just like, "Oh my god! I can't believe that!" I, like, um, I think one of you guys said that. Uh, should I be watching this? Like, is this something I should be seeing? You know, like it feels like that. Like, oh my gosh! This is why my mom never let me watch these kind of movies. You know, like in your twenties or whatever, and still be like, um, "Oops." <laughs> You know, um, but and then in the second half, for sure, Abernathy leg s- smashing uh, Mike's face was just awesome. It's just <laughs> freaking sick. And then the fact that you're kind of already ready for the credits, you know, you th- I, I'm not sure if they're actually rolling at that point. It pauses and it starts, it starts and then they pause again. They finish it so off. You yeah. don't expect it. And that's the beauty of it. Like you don't expect it to happen. And you're like, you're not even for the people who don't wait to the end of the credits in, in, in movies, uh, I'm one of the people that waits for everything to finish. You know, not even the people that get up right away are, they haven't even gotten up yet, you know, and I'm glad because that, that kick, you know, that high kick to his head is just amazing, like awesome. That's like the, the cherry on the top for sure. <laughs> it's great. Tim. No, I got to agree hundred percent. Uh, this thing I like, that's a, best part of the second half is like uh her like the way that chick have it like hits in pretty much it says the end and then like immediately comes back and it's like nope boom she drops that fucking leg that's just so sick but uh i do like, prefer the first half just a little bit especially because like it kind of kicks that all off with him like slamming the brakes and rose mcgowan's face hitting the shit and when that happens it's like like you kind of just like your eyes wide and you're like oh fuck that's this is what we're in for that's like the first mm-hmm. sight of like true violence in the film and um like and then immediately after that you know you see him whip it, like drive and whip it around and like come flying you know and um just the fact that all that was practical uh that was i was watching the blu-ray like the special effects or special features and it showed like the stuntman that like had to drive like straight into a car and shit like that and like land it perfectly and stuff like that. And then of course they say that there's a scene where that was cut out where he like masturbates in the car afterwards, which is one of those things. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad they cut it out. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm like, I kind of like the fade to black. Like that's what I mean is like when the fade to black happens, like that could be the end of a short film for me. 
and I would just be like, holy, f like I would be sit like it was it's the type of film that like uh, when it's over, I'd be sitting there with like my mouth open, just like, oh, fuck. To where like the end of the second film, you it's over and you're like, fuck, yes, like kind of clapping and stuff. Like that. So it's like <laughs> yeah. you kind of like but I've had that reaction. Uh, I've had the more like, hell yeah, reaction more than I've had the like, oh, shit reaction. So that's where I, I do prefer the first one, just a slight more just because of that. You know what I mean? But the, the second yeah. one is like uh i don't know that leg drop is fucking probably the most attractive attack on film <laughs> like if i can uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes I, <laughs> but and if we had the masturbation scene we wouldn't get the great earl mcgraw telling us about it because his explanation of gotta shoot is good like, yeah. like he's so much better i'd rather hear him tell about it than than see him do it so and the why he doesn't go after that. it like the reason he doesn't <laughs> yeah yes so good uh I miss Mr. Parks. He he was a true Tarantino classic, and it's too bad that he's passed. But Mr. Jones, your turn. Oh, that's I mean, <laughs> the guillotine leg drop is so such a <laughs> way to end a film, isn't it? And but, I mean, we we have like the the false ending where it's sort of like the freeze phrase jump, and it's all like yay, <laughs> and then it's all like <laughs> yeah. we're into the credits, and then it's sort of like. Like, nope, gonna give you something for the car ride home. Um, and then if you, this is also really interesting because if you watch the theatrical cut of Grindhouse, they um, it differs the end credits from the Grindhouse cut because the Grindhouse cut ends with like flashes of like Grindhouse girls, including um, a shot of Thriller, or they call her one eye, the uh, which is the chick with the eye patch and the shotgun. And it's because of Grindhouse that everyone's discovered that movie in Tarantino's usual way of like, here, pull out one movie, and then we're about five or six other movies that we all want to discover afterwards. Like, we all want to watch like Lone Wolf and Cub, and we want to watch Lady Snowblood and um, City on Fire. Just all these movies that he's that he is scrapbooking into his movies. And I know a lot of people say, oh, we play Grindhouse's ideas, but I think he opens the door to more films coming through than any other director because. If Tarantino gives it his nod, and we see this on like his new podcast, the uh, Video Archives podcast, which anything that uh, him and Roger Avery are talking about, it's sort of like, oh, I must must go and order this. I must go and look for like teenagers. And those guys can sell ice to Eskimos because I watch teenagers and it's <laughs> awful. But the only reason I watched it is because they raved on about it. So, but no, I love the the payoff. I think it's it's such a good payoff, and it it makes sense because. You know, it's not enough for them just had the free frame jump. These are three badass chicks. They hunted Stuntman Mike. They beat him at his own game. We're going to finish him off. And as I said, Abernathy, it's so like up until that point, everyone else in the car has their purpose. Like Zoe's sort of like the stunt chick. She's on the front. We always got the driver. I'm really bad with names, so I'm just going to apologize. And then so sort of like, well, what's Abernathy done? She's just long for the ride. It's like, nope. She gets the killer blow. She's the reason we brought her along, so she can do that kick. <laughs> it's like, it's like on that joke of the Simpsons, or like, oh, what's that little guy over there doing? He hasn't done anything. Uh, and and he goes like, inside and doesn't see it. And he goes, oh, you need to do something cool. Like, I love that. That's episode. what Abernathy's done. It's just like, oh, that's what she was here for. Well, she has the biggest arc, too, because she's the. You don't need a gun to let's kill this motherfucker to I killed this motherfucker. Like she has such an arc where she's like, I don't why do you need violence? And then all of a sudden she's like, I'm putting my foot through this motherfucker's skull. Like it just took a little bit of a push to see why she needed the violence. So I, I really love that about Abernathy's character arc because most character arcs like, I was a bad person, now I'm a good person. I see the wrong. And we did the reverse for Abernathy. She's like, I'm a good person. I'm like, I'm killing motherfuckers now. You know, like she like, takes a total oh, turn. Yes, exactly. Abernathy becomes a new stuff. Mike, I think that's when it's happening for Abernathy after this film. What do you think? Well, son number one, 
What I think is so goddamn ghoulish, I hesitate to speak it out loud. Well, give it a shot. Well, what we have here is a case of vehicle homicide. That old boy in there murdered them pretty little gals. I mean, he used a car, not a hatchet, but they did just the same. Well, what are you gonna do? Not a goddamn thing. DA says ain't no crime here. There one of them gals was swimming out the hall, floating on weed. An old hooper in there. He might clean as a whistle. Now, you actually think that he premeditatively murdered them gals? Well, I can't prove it. But since thinking don't cost nothing, I can think it, and I do. Yeah, but Pop, he got pretty banged up himself. Well, hell yeah, he got banged up. Giant damn, I mean, them pretty old gals now look like a goddamn giant to chew them up and spit them out. Did any of them survive? <laughs> Shit. Two tons of metal, 200 miles an hour, flesh and bone, and plain old Newton. They all princess died. Why? Well, I guess to me, it's a sex thing. The only way I can figure it. High velocity impact, twisted metal, busted glass, all four souls taken exactly at the same time. Probably the way that diabolical degenerate can shoot his goo. To me, this may be, God, it's hard to say that too, maybe his most pronounced thing we know, needle drops. He's not the first to do it. He's the fucking best to do it, though. I will fight somebody to the death on this thing. Yes, other people have had great movies where they've had needle drops. No one does it every single fucking time like Tarantino does. He introduces new music, just like you're saying with, with um, movies. People don't know who the, what the fuck City on Fire is. Yeah, I mean, you do the Asian cinema. How many people went after John Woo's films? And I'm not talking about Face Off, the American ones. Went back to look for A Better Tomorrow 2. Went back to look for The Killer. Went back to look for Hard Boiled. Went back to look for City on Fire. All these movies because of him. How many people have gone to find all these songs now because of him? I, I mean, there may be someone on this podcast now who made an album because of that exact same thing. You know what I mean? Like he it's it's such um it's become such a part of the fabric of pop culture now that he does this better than anyone's ever done it. I personally, and I'm going to ask you this question. I listened to all the albums. I think this may be my favorite one. I think of all of his soundtracks, this may be my favorite. I think it's one of the most eclectic and probably unknown bunch of songs. But the, I, there's just something about the soundtrack that is just, I don't know, it's ultra cool. Every fucking song feels ultra cool. Like, it's just, I don't know. Where does this fall in your Tarantino top nine of his soundtracks? And what is your favorite needle drop from the film? Uh, so uh, for me, this is probably number two as far as soundtracks go. Uh, Chick Habit is hands down my favorite song ever put in any of his movies. Um, I don't know why. I th- like, I think it's somebody, I was watching a video earlier today that was kind of like talking about Death Proof. And it, I think it said it perfectly. It's, it fits like that slasher anthem you usually hear at the end of a movie. Because for some reason, they always put happy songs at the end of slasher movies. And uh, so it kind of definitely fits into that. But um, uh, overall, I think my favorite soundtrack is Kill Bill. Just because you have nobody but me. You have, I always call it the whistle song. I knew the name earlier today and I can't remember it. But, you know, the song that uh, is it even in this I- I do. Yeah, pretty much just, uh, you know, this one has everything else, though, like uh, the Dave D, uh, Mitch and Titch song, you know, that's fucking just icon- like has become iconic since. Uh, you, like I said, you have Chick Habit, you have uh, borrowed scores from other films and all this stuff, um, which actually leads that leads to the second part of the question for me. My favorite needle drop in this film is uh, Paranoia Primo, uh, Prima. 
It's a small part from the Cat of Nine Tales, the Argento Giallo film from back in the 70s. And it's uh, uh, it's a part of that score by uh, Neo Morricone, you know, the late a legend, Neo Morricone, who did The Thing, which we talked about. So this part actually shows in one of my favorite scenes of the film. It's when she's uh, Butterfly sitting outside by herself and uh, Tarantino's like, hey, flick that light on. And she flicks it on and the, it shows the car and you just hear like a... Like, it kind of does, like, the same thing, like, when you see Michael in the background of uh, Halloween, you know what I mean? So it's just, um, it definitely just, uh, not a needle drop in the sense of, like, you know, like, typical Tarantino needle drop, where you're like, damn, the song, like, now I want to put the song in my playlist. But it's a, it's a needle drop for that, like, that fits that, like, part of the film perfectly, because, and shows that, you know, again, Tarantino is perfect at every level, because it's like, uh, <laughs> like, we knew he could do, like, we knew that he could do Chick Habit at the end of the film, we knew he could do Down in Mexico at the lap dance, but to do the, you know, Neo Morricone fucking Cat and Nine Tells, you know, cue at, you know, while showing the murder weapon of the car, which is also, like, to me, I feel like a hint at Giallo films, because, like, when Giallo films, when they kill people, you see leather gloves and a knife, and, like, the whole point is that it's a whodunit, which, you know, Scream is my favorite horror movie of all time, and I feel like, you know, that's part of Scream's thing, is that it comes from, like, the whole, like, it's a whodunit, you know, with the, you know, but you see the hand and the knife, so I feel like that's the whole thing, is, like, not only are you seeing a Giallo, you're hearing a Giallo score, but you're only seeing the murder weapon like you would see in a Giallo film. You know what I mean? So it's uh, I feel like it's like double, you know, layered in a sense. You know what I mean? Because it's like not only is it, you know, just using the score like, oh, this is cool because I love Argento films. It's like uh, we're also going to show you the murder weapon while playing a cue that you probably, you know, I haven't seen. I try to watch Cat and Nine Tells uh, before doing this once I figured out that that's what the cue was from. The only reason I didn't watch it is because I spent my time watching the the extended cut of Death Proof because I wanted to try to squeeze in Vanishing Point as well well just because it's been a while but uh i just couldn't but so that's that's definitely my favorite needle drop is the paranoia prima from ania morricone uh during that scene and then just it's probably number two for me just with kill bill being slightly above it just because it's uh this one has some songs that would be ranked higher than songs on kill bill but kill bill just has an overall to me better soundtrack fair mr jones where do you put the soundtrack in your lexicon of top nine for tarantino and your favorite needle drop uh this is much like the film is number two uh, Pulp Fiction is still my all-time favorite soundtrack. That soundtrack, we actually had to, like, put out a cleaner cut when we used to listen to it in real life because <laughs> of all the all the uh, quote stuff and stuff. So we had to, like, take all the tracks off it and put it onto, like, a burn CD because nobody wants to hear, like, the path of the righteous man blasting over your pool speakers. And <laughs> <laughs> you're, like, dashing. It's like, oh, my God, no, no, no. <laughs> but, no, I really... This is a, a really fantastic soundtrack, and I think it's because it's not got so much uh, instrumental sort of... In, so many incidental pieces as, like, the Kill Bill Volume 1 soundtrack, which would be, like, my number three. And it's a really great mix of uh, songs. It's also really great for the car. So you can have the Essence Easy Tops Eliminator and you're sorted. I had this on when I was like driving the kids around to my wife's wondering why we're driving so fast and I've got like the, the last race on. It's like going down country roads and having my stepman mic moment. But my favorite uh, track on this is um, Down in Mexico. I had that at my wedding as one of our seven tracks we chose. That and the ACDCs, You Shook Me All Night and uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins Frenzy. It's a very eclectic mix I gave to that DJ. It's like, just work around this. If you tell me your wife was taking her garter off at that down in Mexico, you have the two coolest <laughs> stories I've heard so far that tie into Tarantino next to no, no, this electric did. meeting two of the Tarantino greats. It's fun because he's like a, a big X-Files fan and I'm obviously like a Tarantino fan and I put down in Mexico in like one of the mixtapes I was made for when I was caught in and she was like, this is an amazing song. And I was like, yeah, 
Yes, it is. And it like for the fact that I'm like sponged off Tarantino's record collection. <laughs> but no, he does he has that habit of like ingraining songs in your head. It is hard to hear Steeler's Wheel stuck in the middle with you without thinking of the ear slicing scene. Like when you think of uh the sodomy sequence in Pulp Fiction. The um originally it was going to be to the tune of uh Arsharona. But one of the band members had become like a board again Christian. He's like, no, you're not going to take our song and fuck it up in everyone's head. So that's why uh, it changed into that little surf rock piece instead. But um, no, I think Down in Mexico uh, or like Staggerly is also really underrated Great on that, yeah. that track. Um, I think it's just the storytelling in Staggerly that I particularly like. But the instrumental bits, as I said, like Last Race or even like Chick Habit is just all sort of like real standouts and... There is a French version of Chick Habit called uh, La Cie Tombe Les Fils by Fabien Dessol, uh, which you can get on Spotify as well, which it sounds great in French as well. Yeah, I just, I think that Chick Habit was like the perfect ending, whether you're watching the Grindhouse cut or just the Death Proof uh, extended cut. I think it just perfectly ends this uh, moment. Even like the lyrics, it's sort of like the next woman you see will be driving in a hearse and stuff. And it's sort of like, these are all like things that are syncing up with these badass chicks. It's all like, they kicked your ass down. I'm like, <laughs> and the next person girl you're going to see is going to be driving your hearse. So, uh, yeah, I just, those are my standouts. So, but yeah, definitely one for the car. A resident musician, Miss Electric, what is your favorite song? And where does this album rank for you in his nine? It's definitely... Close to the top. I would say probably second uh, in my ranking of his soundtracks. First would have to be Jackie Brown, 100%. Wow, what a what a difference. All number two, <laughs> and everyone has a difference. Oh, that's pretty cool. I mean, that's a, that's, but that's Tarantino, right? Like, that's the whole world of it. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan. I love funk music. I love his use of it. I, I think... All that, all the songs in Jackie Brown are amazing, and so that's the only reason why that one is on top. I've listened to that CD, I don't know how many times. I, I mean, I, now I listen to it on Spotify, but I'll just, I'll just go through it. It's just amazing. Um, but definitely, Death Proofs is could be, I think, second for sure. Um, it, it's really good. I mean, it's, it's so, it's so well done. I mean, I feel like Barry Ramos, who is um, his music supervisor, like his his collaboration with her is like the same as his collaboration with Sally Mankey as his editor, his music supervisor. And their, their combination is just amazing. Like without them, I don't know. I, I mean, QT has a really good taste for music. So um, I'm not sure how much input she puts in and stuff like that, but I mean, I'm sure she does. So I think regardless if she was there or not, I'm not sure how, how different the soundtracks would be, but Definitely, you know, number two on my list, only because Jackie Brown's number one. But um, as far as the songs go, I'd have to agree with Alwood. Um, Down in Mexico is, is is my favorite for sure. But close behind would be like a uh, Hold Tight, um, The Last Race, Chick Habit. Like and I can keep like I can just list off the soundtrack. You know, I remember when Jeepster by T Rex came out, and I'm a little biased with that one only because I'm I'm a T Rex fan. So when that song came out, I was like, Oh my god, a T Rex song! Oh my god, Tarantino, a T Rex song in a Tarantino movie! Oh, my. I was nerding out so bad. So that one aside, it would be um, the Coasters song. Um, I think it's so it's such a perfect song. Not only does it have like that cool like rhythm and like like it's like smooth rhythm of like it's very comparison to how mike is you know and and but then it also has this sexy seductive quality 
like Arlene, you know, and then when you like you have that saxophone and those conga drums, you know, it it, it gives you that that vibe. And it's like the perfect it, it brings like the or displays like the perfect essence of like desire between the two. So I think it's the, it's the perfect song in that moment. I agree. And that's why I think it's my favorite, like, you know, how we compare the movies. But there's just so much good on that fucking on that album. It's so much good stuff. It's just it's unbelievable. You know, he really finds some deep cuts, like really deep cuts. Now, some things that aren't very good, and I'm sure you know what's coming next, as you have your notes, Tarantino and his films. Look, I love the man. I, yeah, obviously, uh, I, you know, I got the shirt. Like, I love the guy. Like, like beyond, beyond belief. But also, being a fair person, I can also see when he's not good, and he's not usually great in his films. He just isn't. However, 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 I do find that in this film, in the first half, as Warren... He's actually pretty good. Like, I feel like it's just Tarantino playing himself as he was just a bartender. Like, he's like, hi, I'm Quentin Tarantino, and I own this bar in Austin, Texas. And that's who he is. Like, I feel it's just Tarantino as a bar owner instead of a film geek, right? So, <laughs> oh, man. But he is, I mean, he is bad. <laughs> like, uh, you know, obviously what hasn't lasted long is him, the whole Jimmy thing in, in Pulp Fiction has not aged well. Uh, he's awful as the Australian in Django Chain. However, also in Django, he plays one of the hooded guys who's really funny about like we don't have to wear the bag so he gets to lean into a southern but he's got a mask on so he's good there but how do you feel about tarantino his films how do you feel he did in this film particularly and just a side note are you actually taking a shot of chartreuse are you actually going to take a shot of chartreuse so elwood will start with you how do you like him in his films do you like him as warren and are you ever going to drink a shot of a color handed to you by warren played by quentin tarantino oh well chartreuse is a similar color to to um was it uh, Absentine, is it? The drink that uh, sends you mad? Which yeah, it makes you cut your own ear off uh, during... You, you have your own <laughs> stuck in the middle with you moment. Cut your Absentine to a hooker. I mean, who doesn't do this? Uh, everyone. <laughs> yeah, all the, all the great creative geniuses drink it. But, um, and bad guys in triple X. The, I liked, I'm a, I don't know really, I'm an apologist, I guess, for Tarantino as an actor. I don't mind him as an actor. And I think here he has the advantage because he has Eli Roth trying to act who is worse. <laughs> um, so you, it's sort of, that may or may not like come a, up on like our <laughs> Oh my God. To think Adam Sandler was originally going to play the Burjew. I don't know if it's better or worse than Eli Roth playing the Burjew. Honestly, and there's no attack on Miss Sin. I would rather see Sin play the Burjew <laughs> than Eli Roth. I'll be honest with you. He was he just, yeah. Anyways, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to introduce side. That's fine. Side and I mean, I like it. I love the character Jimmy in, in Pulp Fiction. I think the, why do you see no signs? Because it's not my fucking business. And the conversation has about coffee in this kitchen. These are like similar conversations. That I, these are all quirks that I can relate to in a person because I like decent coffee, not the freeze-dried crap that everyone else has. 
And the Jimmy Funko is still one of my most elusive items. I want it next to my John Waters Funko. You're, you're going to show it me now, aren't you? Yes. For this, if this is an audio version, Scott is now taunting me with his Jimmy Funko. You have no idea how much money I spent to get that Pulp Fiction collection. Yes, I know. That's way this. too much. But um, yes, as Warren, I think his scenes are so limited. He is just there to provide filler and he is fun you this is tarantino's bar as you said already the jukebox we know already being tarantino fans is his own jukebox yep. he wrote all the liner notes himself and those are all his records so it's very easy to see him as warren and his interactions are limited but they're memorable enough but as i said we've got <laughs> acting human <laughs> shield eli roth there to like go god that's so bad and then you look at his arms going He's got arms like Robin Williams' knuckles. It's like, how hairy is this man? And this is like what you're using to distract yourself from like this awful performance that Eli Roth is giving us. And it's sort of like, was Eli Roth doing this for free and it meant you had more money? I, I don't know what the arrangement was, but it's sort of like, oh, I just felt like they should have done a Wayne's World and sort of like, I know it's a small part, but can we just get a better acting and like bring Charlton Heston in or something? Oh. Um, yeah, I don't mind. I don't mind Tarantino as a as an actor. He's not the greatest actor, but at the same time, the bits of acting he's done, like Django, when he's like uh, the Australian and, miner. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's there, um, and I didn't know he was the bad guy until like years later. So I don't. I don't mind him in, as Mister blue i mean he was originally gonna be mr blonde can you imagine like if madison hadn't played that character like no. tarantino some skittish video store clerk at that point with questionable hygiene issues <laughs> during that <laughs> it's just not good so but no i don't mind him as an actor no miss electric do you like him as an actor do you like him as jimmy or jimmy as Warren? and are you taking some chartreuse um i actually don't mind his acting i think he's so nerdy like his nerdiness shines through every one of his performances for me, and I, it's just it's just funny every time I see him play somebody on screen. But the Warren character feels more authentic. It doesn't feel as forced or like he's playing like a part. He's just hanging out with his friends, which he is. I mean, he's there with with Robert and and Eli and everybody. He's just hanging out with his friends, serving alcohol, which I think they even mentioned like in between. Uh, shots or takes or they they would actually be drinking you know in the bar so i mean he i feel like he was most relaxed most himself in that scene which makes his acting a little bit more tolerable or tolerable for some people but i i I do uh, (laughs) n-word aside i do it like his his uh um, jimmy character in pulp fiction i i I, it's just it's just out of left field he's just so (laughs) nerd he's such a geek like he's trying to play this hard ass and he's he's just a geek and i love i love that about him but um do i take a shot of chartreuse if i was one of the girls which it seems like they have like a relationship with him um it seems like they frequent that bar a lot 100 percent. i mean he's offering a drink we're all drinking we're all having a good time yeah for sure I, i've never had chartreuse so i don't know what it tastes like but even if it was my first time and i'm like putting myself in the film I would. Uh, if he was just some random bartender or owner and was just like trying to give me drinks, hell no. <laughs> because like, <laughs> if, if I had the reputation with him and I knew him and I was comfortable with him, yeah, for sure. But otherwise, no way. <laughs> Mr. Trashmouth. Uh, so I'll start by saying, first of all, I'll definitely take the chartreuse. Uh, I'll take anything that's free. And I mean, I, 
I'm like, I'm a pretty fat, like 240 pound dude. I mean, I'm not like super big, but that's a total male answer, yeah, though. That's saying, like, that's how you know we never saying. have to worry about being roofy. We're like, whatever, We're not, I'll drink turpentine. Say, I know you're not trying to sleep with me. Well, I was about to say, if, <laughs> if he can successfully roofy me and then drag my fat ass upstairs somewhere and have his way, I won't press charges because it's like impressive, <laughs> but you get for the effort. Yeah, like, uh, no, but not to make light of something like that, but you know what I mean. So, uh, I would definitely take the chartreuse, but. I feel like this character is definitely like the perfect character like that he's played. Uh, I don't mind his acting either. Like none of the things he's played in the past has ever bothered me, but it's almost every time he shows up on film, it almost takes me out of it more. So it doesn't matter if he's bad. You know what I mean? But uh, as far as this film, this is the first one that it doesn't really fully take me out of it. And I feel like he almost fits that perfect stigma of annoying bartender that you deal with for the perks like free shots of chartreuse. So like, like even though it's not something we've all heard of, it's still a free shot. And the fact that he brings him free shit, and the fact that they frequent the bar, I feel like that's all just like part of the characters. It's like, uh, yeah, Jungle Julie is annoying, but it's like that's the part of like uh, like her and her friends. They deal with that because of like the perk. I mean, obviously they're her friends, but she also brings perks of being like a radio person and like, you know, like all the shit she can do and like people she knows. And it's kind of the same thing they deal with with Warren. It's like they deal with him because it's like he's the bartender. It's like they come in, they walk around barefoot. Like how many bars can you walk around barefoot? I mean, I don't I've never been to Texas and this movie's kind of like up in the air about when it takes place as far as the nokia phone because other than that it could be the 70s and so it's just like one of those things that's like uh i feel like the character of warren is just portrayed perfectly it's like just definitely that character of like annoying bartender that you deal with for perks and then as far as uh you know uh his acting overall it's just it's never it's never stuck out as bad but it's never stuck out as like damn quentin tarantino should star in his own movies like you know what I mean? so, <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't just turn to some movies. Hey, them's the rules, baby. Warren says it, we do it. I love that philosophy. Warren says it, we do it. So let's do it. What is it? Hey, shock first, questions later. Here we go. Post time. Mm. As you know, I have two things at the end here, right? But I'm actually going to combine them because one, Mr. Elwood is, it's almost, Jesus Christ, it's like 11.15 his time. While Miss Sin is like, oh, it's only 3.15. She's got a whole day out of her. <laughs> I feel he writes great female characters. I feel he writes strong female characters. I feel like he writes strong female characters and he writes great African-American characters as well as they're always the smartest. They're always the toughest. Like he doesn't cheapen anything about them. Even if they may be the people who are at the other end of the stick of somebody, like maybe they're the ones who have to get their revenge. They're always the smartest in the room. They're always tough. They're, they're not weak, throwaway fucking characters at all. Obviously this film, I mean, the whole film is a badass chicks after badass chicks. Even if we don't like the first group of girls, there's still some pretty, I mean, uh, Jungle Julia is a pretty badass chick. Like, you're not fucking with Jungle Julia. Like, if you think Abernathy can get her leg up, imagine Jungle Julia is like what that kick would have been like. That would have been, she would have put his head through the fucking Tarvia. That would have been unreal if she had done it. Now, the standout, besides those amazing women, is 
Kurt fucking Russell. Because Kurt Russell is not normally a bad guy. He plays bad asses, but he rarely up until that point played a bad guy. He's usually, you know, he's either some inspirational coach cheering the Americans on to beat the Russians in hockey. He's either Snake fucking Pliskin, he's either McCready, or he's Jack Burton in uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Like, he's just fucking the guy. Or he's, even in some of his funny roles, like uh, Overboard or Captain Ron, or whatever, you know, he's never a bad guy. You're always like, ah, Kurt Russell. In this motherfucking movie, especially in that second half, you're like, holy fucking shit. So, my quick questions. I'll end all three of them for you so we can move on to your final thoughts and I can let this young, this man in England go to bed. Don't worry. This is, this is fun. Does he, in fact, in your opinion, and we'll try to do it not mansplaining our opinions, but we'll just from our perspective, we'll also tell you. How do you feel about his, the females? Did he write strong female characters in this film? How much did you love... Kurt Russell as the bad guy, and who is your favorite character overall from the film? I think he does really well uh, creating his female characters. Um, from other movies that I can compare it to, there's no point in time where I feel like, oh, it's like a damsel in distress, or please, Mr. Whoever, save me. And it's not the overuse of here's a boob shot or an ass shot, you know, somewhere. It's not over-sexualizing whatsoever. They just feel like normal girls, you know, they just normal people regardless if they're female or male you just want to hang out with them whichever either group of girls you just want to just chill in that bar with them or you know bullshit in the diner it feels very authentic and i think it's one of the reasons why i've enjoyed his movies in the past especially with like kill bill and jackie brown like they're both badasses like they kick everybody's ass and it does never feels like you're going to feel so sorry for this poor little girl. And then here comes this man to swoop them away and blah, blah, blah. Like, it's like, I've seen that story so many times. It's so boring. Not a fan of like those kind of like romantic comedies or anything like that, where it just feels like that. Like a lot of Disney movies feel like that too. Or And I don't like that. Like I like this. It feels real. It feels relatable. And it feels like somebody that I would want I, mean, I don't have any kids, but if I had like a, a, a little girl looking up, I would want her, I mean, it's hopefully at a proper age <laughs> to watch these movies and have a proper role model in the sense like, yeah, you can kick ass. Yeah. Like you can, you know, bring your foot over your head and smash the face of this dude. Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't need somebody to, you don't need to go call Jasper over there doing who knows what to, to uh, Lee, you know, you don't need to go call, Hey, I need some help on the side of the road this guy's trying to you know smash our car or whatever yeah i i think he does a really good job and i think that's one of the reasons why i really enjoy his films it never feels like exploitative in any way i do like that the other question was uh, kurt russell is a bad guy kurt russell is a bad guy i've only seen a few so here's the thing with me when i was growing up I wasn't allowed to watch anything we weren't me i have uh, two other siblings we weren't allowed to watch anything outside of like public television or cartoons or things that were you know, meant for our age. But even as we started growing up, we weren't allowed to watch a lot of stuff either. You you live under my roof. You're going to only watch the stuff that, you know, I'm allowing you to watch. So when I started getting a little bit older, <laughs> sneakily, my sister gave me what was her favorite movie. She's, she's seven years older than I am, which was Reservoir Dogs. When I watched that movie, I was just it was over you know it was just like i was a fan i wanted to watch everything else that that tarantino made after that i right now at this point since i've been doing this whole project this um my crazy 88 project where i'm doing all the music and because i'm having to go back and watch a lot of stuff i am catching up so i don't have a lot 
to work off of when it comes to stuff. I'm trying to catch up. It's so hard because there's so many great movies. And <laughs> I, my, my litter box list is just like filled, filled with stuff because I'm like, oh my God, I got to watch this one and this one and this one. It's so many. But um, I did watch, I can't remember, where he plays Pliskin, which is, um, what is the movie? Escape from New York. Escape yeah. From, I did watch that one. I really like that one. Um, he's fucking cool. As fuck. <laughs> and the thing, I did watch the thing. He's a badass. He is so cool. And I mean, that's proof he's cool too. Like, I mean, yeah, he's murdering women, and yeah, okay, okay, he's a statistic. <laughs> from the past. Yeah, but he's also really fucking cool, <laughs> you know. I mean, that aside, if you were to take that apart, and this was like just a drama movie or whatever, he's cool. I mean, he's a badass. Like, he always plays a badass, no matter what. You know, he's even a badass in Hatefully. I, I mean, that's one of my top movies too. I mean, he is so. Fr- I can't imagine anybody else playing that part. Like, I try to think of other actors that I knew of, you know, maybe in that age range, I can't think of anybody. I mean, I, I, maybe a Michael Madsen, maybe like just, mm, but like, uh, he, I don't think he would ever do something. I don't think he likes violence in that, that much, you know, like he doesn't, mm-hmm. I don't think he'd want to run over women <laughs> or bash their head <laughs> in, in his car. I don't think he'd want to do something like that, but, um, but yeah, he, he, he was phenomenal for sure. <laughs> and then you had, uh, Third, third yes, the last one was who's your favorite character in this film, which is full of great characters. It, it is. It's hard. It was really hard to pick one. I don't even like the one that I picked because it just it makes me feel it's almost like <laughs> picking like the list of his movies. I'm like, oh, but I really like this person. I really like this. Like, oh, but but it has to be Zoe. It has to be. She is. I don't know if everybody, anybody else does this. I'm sure there are, but I tend to cling on to people that I can relate a little bit more to. So with her i related a little bit more she just doesn't give a fuck and she's hilarious and she is super super passionate has this crazy crazy dream of getting this car and you know (laughs) playing ships mass and all this stuff and (laughs) drags her friends along on this crazy dream whether they care about it or not and i i really like her as a character and she's just playing herself so i would assume like you know that's who she is you know she's she's just as she has the most other badass uh what, what, how do i word this uh she is just as badass as mike's character you know like in a different way for sure but um i do like her but it's but i think close behind is like kim and abernathy and then i could just list all the girls because they're so cool <laughs> and obviously mike like how do you not like mike i, I think yeah i think the only ones that i'm kind of like eh, are, are the dudes which i think any, everybody can kind of agree the guys are kind of like okay <laughs> when, are they off the screen <laughs> tim your turn, my friend. So uh, as far as the first half of the girls go, I feel like they come off as strong characters, but they almost come off as like realistic people. And the fact of like Arlene, um, you know, AKA Butterfly has like, she gets down on herself because nobody's asking her to dance and all that, or, you know, for the lap dance. And then same thing with uh, Jungle Julia and she's down on herself because the filmmaker's not like reaching out to her and stuff like that. And so I feel like uh, even though they are portrayed as still strong in character, they still have like those faults and stuff. But also that I feel like that plays into their weaknesses and like them being the slasher like the pawns for slashers to be killed like you know like people to be killed by a slasher pretty much so the second half of the film is just full of strong from head to toe characters even mary elizabeth winstead who plays uh lee who just you know sits there with jasper the whole time <laughs> or you know like who a lot of people say is jasper and just like uh you know why they go off and do the shit even like 
you know, obviously she didn't have a choice. She kind of wakes up to him, but even her doing that <laughs> is kind of like gutsy. You know what I mean? So she has great little one moments. She has great little moments. Yeah. The part where she's like, she's like, you're a secret service agent. And she stops. And she's like, I didn't say it. <laughs> it's like, that's like my, one of my favorite parts of hers. But uh, no, I love, I just, uh, so the second half, I feel like the girls are definitely like stronger female characters. And the, the first half, they're still strong female characters, but they're just portrayed with more like realistic, like faults. Like, cause even a guy, you know, has a lot of the same thing. Like you could portray a guy the same exact way as you portray Jungle Julia. He's addicted to his friends, but when he's off to his side, he's texting his girlfriend like, oh, I love you. I miss you. So it's like, uh, it's so real. It's very realistic and it's like portrayal and stuff um i just feel like the second half the, the characters are a little stronger because they don't show the weaknesses they kind of just lead into the fact that they're all strong um but he's always done great like um like uh sin mentioned you know with kill bill uh not only is beatrix kiddo fucking badass but literally like three out of the five assassins are females like he could have wrote five male assassins like you know probably every other filmmaker would have or like 90 percent of filmmakers would have you know because uh that's what they do you know they're misogynistic so they write what they feel like is you know fits or whatever so pretty much the fact that he had all of them come in and just you know be female as well is just like shows that he like uh he respects them but also puts them in the place of power kind of like uh they you know like they should be you know like with the whole like i hate to you know be this way but like uh because i feel like every culture should be this way but the way the african-american culture looks at their like elders as king and queens like i feel like he looks at his elder women as queens and i feel like you know that's how it should always be so i don't know i just like the fact that he does that with women it's like you know he puts them on a pedestal but not in an unrealistic way if that makes sense how do you feel about kurt russell Oh, he's just badass as fuck. I love him as, uh, I will say that, uh, kind of doing research for this, I did see that there was rumors that he tried to get John Jarrett, who played the killer in Wolf Creek. And the fact that he's Australian and the fact that they didn't make the whole joke about the, like, you know, Kiwis versus Australians and shit, like, that would have been kind of a cool dynamic to see, plus Wolf Creek. Like, that movie's so fucking, like, I don't know. Like, that's like, uh, makes me never want to go to Australia. Yeah. It, I'll tell you that. <laughs> it definitely is like a, a hard to watch horror movie. It's one of those movies that it's like, damn, that movie is like a nine out of 10, but it's like, you don't want to watch it again type thing. So it's, uh, it's definitely, uh, I would have liked to see like maybe him step in. Like that would have been kind of like interesting to see. But like after seeing Kurt Russell, it was just, he killed it. Um, he's perfect as a good guy, but he, Every time he's played a good guy, it's always been in the badass way. So it makes real, like, a lot of sense for him to turn into that bad guy that you still root for. You know, like, in the same sense of, like, Leatherface, you know, like, or, you know, like, Jason, you know what I mean? Like, uh, especially in the first half, you know. But it, that's one thing I like about this film so much is it does a good job of making you root for Mike in the first half, but making you root for Mike in the, I mean, root for the women in the second half. So it's like... Not many movies can do that. Usually if you root for somebody, you root for them the whole time. And the fact that it can make you literally be like, you know, in part to uh, Kurt Russell's just acting, period. You know, like when the time comes and one of my favorite scenes I meant to mention earlier when we we're talking about the two car scenes is when she's like, uh, Zoe's running up with the pole and like hitting him. And she's like, fuck you, you motherfucker. Like, what now, bitch? And like, he's just like, ah. Like screaming and he's crying. Yeah. Why? Why? It's like I feel like his <laughs> his acting is like half of the reason you go with the girls. Like obviously at that point you're like, man, fuck this guy. Like he's just out there to kill women. But at the same time, it's like you, that's the reason you lose all like rooting for him because like you could kind of have like a toss up at the end where you're like, oh, that was cool, but like you know, my boy Stuntman Mike died. It's like no, it's, at the end you're like, fuck Stuntman Mike, he's a pussy. <laughs> like, you know, for lack of a better <laughs> word, but I just like, uh, no, nah, I just really, uh, that's one thing I like about him as the bad guy is he plays it perfectly in every aspect. Like you, he charms you when he's supposed to charm you, but he creeps you out when he's supposed to creep you out. Uh, even down to the four, fourth wall break, like you talked about earlier. Favorite character? Uh, definitely Kim. I fucking love Kim. Uh, 
growing up my friends always called me tim the insulter mills because i was one of those like <laughs> i was like a dickhead when it came to like just saying stuff to friends and i feel like that's just her like like uh, but i bring that up because like send you know said how you kind of relate to you know zoe i feel like it's the same thing with kim it's like the relation it's like not only being uh quippy with the things she says but being kind of an asshole about it like i don't know it's just everything about her i would just truly uh enjoy and from and even down to the part of like um which just shows how great her and rosario dawson are as actresses like the fact that when Zoe flies off the car, they are full blown face covered in tears. Not like a bare, like, not like the fucking Native American tear in the trash commercial. Like that <laughs> shit was like full on fucking tears. And it's like, it shows that they care about their friends and stuff like that. And uh, I don't know. So that's one thing I, I really liked about just like Abernathy was probably my second favorite. And that was exactly why it was just because of the true care for her friends. And when the time came, like, it was like, not nah, like, like, we're going to get this motherfucker type thing and like that especially them too because i felt like they had that tough like even though zoe stood back up got back in the car and zoe had like that oh like i'm good they had like that moment of like they thought she was gone so they already had that in their head of like nah like they he would have like if even if she was dead it wouldn't matter different to him you know what i mean so it's like that had already clicked in their head of him killing a friend so whether she's alive or dead he technically killed one of their friends you know what i mean like in their mind type thing. they so, felt it yeah, yeah. so <laughs> it's like i don't know just really definitely uh alter that but those three right there abernathy zoe and kim are just like i could watch a fucking series about them three like literally you could just fucking make a movie about it doesn't even have to be like action-packed like they could just literally be humor-packed and i'd watch it yeah tracy toms is the one i wish would have more roles who she played kim i wish she would get i can't believe she hasn't been in more tarantino films it's broadway i i hope she will she she well, you know she did rent and then like so she's pretty much been yep. on, oh, yeah, yeah. She's, been on yeah, broadway she's fantastic since, yeah. but the fact that she didn't go more after that role yeah, yeah. hey maybe something was either money or like you know like you live in new york if you can go to broad like it might be convenience over you know fame. maybe Mr. Jones, close us out. First of all, I mean, strong women in cinema is a big love for myself. I grew up like watching a lot of kung fu movies where women are always sort of like able to handle the rub. And that transferred into like anime where, again, female characters are always super kick-ass. That's something I always gravitated towards. I love strong women in films. And I love as well in this film the fact that you don't have to have an emasculated male character to add to the strength of your female characters. And this is something you actually see a lot if you watch any of the Rocks movies. The fact that if he's an extra strong uh, female character, they have an emasculated male character to make him seem more imposing. And this is again what I love about Kurt Russell is the fact that he's the blue-collar hero. He's like Charles Bronson. He's the working-class guy who just like goes out and he stumbles into something and he gets the job done. And it's not going to be pretty and he's not going to have like the super soldier abilities of like Stallone or Arnie and he's not the athletic ability of a Van Damme or a Jackie Chan. He's just the working class Joe who's going to go out there and nuff it. And we see this with like McCready in um, The Thing. It's sort of like, how are we going to solve this? Burn it to the ground. <laughs> we see it in like Victor and Little China. It's sort of like, He's actually the sidekick in that movie, is, which we never realized. The big climactic fight scene, he knocks himself unconscious. Yep. And then when we look at um, Escape from New York, just how bad Kurt Russell is, he's wearing an eye patch and it doesn't look stupid. There's very no. few people who can pull off an eye patch. Yes. It's it's so convincing. Uh, on my former podcast, Watchers of Die, we did an episode and then we talked about my oh, my former course and I talked about at one point we might just remove and I just put an eye patch on because he looks so fucking cool. Like I want to have an eye patch stage in my life at some point. It's like an eye patch and a mullet as well. He's got that, it's that <laughs> weird thing going on with his hair in there. But Kurt Russell, I mean, he's a 
child actor turned adult actor. There's very few actors who can say that. I mean, you can go back and see, he was like a Disney kid. He was in The Fugitive. He was like one of the few people who, there's a scene um, of him like holding up Richard Kimball in The Fugitive and it's sort of like one of the few people to actually capture The Fugitive in that whole show. And it's so, he's so grounded in like his personal life and it carries across into the performances we see. And to think that Mickey Rourke was like original choice to play Stuntman Mike, he can't do the charming bits that you need in the in the bar sequences, which obviously Kurt Russell can. I mean, Mickey Rourke in his current state is very good at playing characters like marv and like heavies he just doesn't have the the charm um to like carry off it that we need with stuntman mike because the first group of girls he warms himself to them by the end he's sort of like he's one of the gang it's all like hey look stuntman mike got lucky he's going off and eat with a girl and it's all like we don't realize that he's about to show his true colors and then head on show his true colors with the uh, other girls so um, so I think he's, uh, he's sort of like so perfectly cast in this. And I love the fact he's joined the Tarantino cast of players like Samuel Jackson. And the fact that we see him again in like Hateful Eight where he's the warrest man. We see him again in Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a Time where he's a the stunt man stunt again. <laughs> Maybe it's Stuntman <laughs> Bob. I wish he was. This is the thing. So you, great. you see a character appear and it's sort of like, is this the guy? And I mean, if we, if we go back to True Romance, we've got the Burgess, um yes. cousin there like yep. selling it's, it's, it's the father. rights to his story. Son. Yeah, it's all like coming home in a body bag is like the story of the bird you that he's selling. So like you can't help but draw like lines in the work. It's all like the Vega brothers, like Vincent is like related to Mr. Blonde. And it's all like it just makes you want to see those films he proposed, like doing the Vega brothers and stuff, but obviously missed his window for them. So maybe we'll get it in literature. And Zoe Bell again, that another wonderful addition. I think it's so hard not to be charmed by Zoe Bell and to her be introduced playing herself in this film. It's just every time you see her in this or you see her in like Whip It, uh, it's, she's just effortlessly charming. Um, and even like in lockdown when she was doing like the um, the bitch fight brawl where she was like seeing with like the other stunt coordinators and how cool that was compared to like celebrities singing lines from Imagine. It's so like <laughs> uh, that's going to be a movie. She's going to direct it. That actually got greenlit oh, really? to become a movie. That whole little fight thing she did. I don't know how what she's going to turn it. Yep, it got greenlit to be a I'm movie. I'm so excited to see anything that she does. I mean, even she did. Uh, I think a film a, like a bloodsport movie called Rays, which she was really good in as well. So anything that Zoe Bell wants to do, I'm happy to see. Um, and she just embodies strong female characters i mean she gets run off the front of the car and i even in the back of her head we know she's okay because she's zoe the cat but when she pops up it's all like oh okay and it's like oh you're so damn charming zoe bell <laughs> oh so who's your favorite so character just like, Is it just like zoe? Go and say zoe so i'm going to go and be like the odd one out and i'm going to say marcy um i know she's a bit character and i know That's that right. she's just basically um michelle wolf and another guy's but I just, Marcy's scenes in this film are so great. They're so short. I mean, it's so hard to pick one of the, the girls. I mean, if we choose from the original girls, I mean, Arlene is probably my favorite. And again, I don't know why Vanessa Faleto hasn't really done anything else. I mean, she came off doing CSI New York to do this and then nothing else, as far as I can tell. So I would say uh, I'm going to be the old one out and say Marcy just for my own weird reasons. Did you know Kim carried a gun? Yes. Now, do I approve? No. Do I know? Yes. Look, I don't know what futuristic utopia you live in, but the world I live in, a bitch need a gun. <laughs> you can't get around the fact that people who carry guns tend to get shot more than people who don't. And you can't get around the fact that if I go down to the laundry room in my building at midnight enough times, 
I might get my ass raped. Don't do your laundry at midnight. Fuck that. I want to do my laundry whenever the fuck I want to do my laundry. <laughs> there are other things you can carry other than a gun. Pepper spray. Uh, motherfucker try to rape me? I don't want to give him a skin rash. I want to shut that nigga down. How about a knife, at least? Yeah. You know what happens to motherfuckers carry knives? They get shot. Look, if I ever become a famous actress, I won't carry a gun. I'll hire me a dude dirt nigga, and he'll carry the gun. And when shit goes down, I'll sit back and laugh. But until that day, it's Wild West, motherfucker. Well, Mr. Jones, I will let you go first. We're going to go in reverse order. Normally, we do ladies first, but I would like our esteemed person who's, like, this close. I mean, like, she's this close to Tarantino. I'm, like, I'm not even on the screen. Like, she's, like, this far away from meeting him. I'll never see him. Your final thoughts on this film as it turns 15 years old, Mr. Jones. This is a film like Jackie Brown. I think it's getting better with age. I think people are going back and reevaluating it. I mean, whereas obviously Jackie Brown, I think the audiences have aged into appreciating Jackie Brown because it's older leads. So it's a little hard when you're like a college kid and you're seeing like older leads, Robert Foster and Pam Greer. Fantastic actors, but there's too much of an age gap there. To, you haven't got enough life experience to appreciate where these characters come from. And I think with Death Proof, we're now going back and we're sort of like looking at it with fresh eyes and we're sort of like going, you know, damn, that car chase is so good. And there's this, I, there's, I think it's just so well, now it's so separate from Grindhouse, the two films. I mean, we don't even talk about Planet Terror anymore. We talk about Death Proof and whether that's because it's a Tarantino flick or just the quality of this film, I think it's so well worth reevaluating. And I think it deserves to be higher up in the Tarantino rankings. And the fact that it hasn't got so many of the things like there's, there's not so much that can be ingrained into pop culture that you see in this movie. I think that's what helps it stand out more. We're not burnt out on this one, like the same way we are with like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Um, and even like Kill Bill 1 to an extent. I mean, there's so many homages to the House of Blue Leaf sequence. And I mean, it's even like in date movie, they do a homage to Kill Bill 1. <laughs> um, so I think the fact it's so detached, it's just, it's like Inglourious Bastards, it's just, it's a movie that just exists. We haven't talked this one out. Um, and I think that's why it stays so fresh. And and we're now coming back and it's sort of like, it feels like this uh, little hidden gem in this filmography. It's all like, why, why haven't we talked about this? It's like Scorsese's Mean Streets. We're all about like Raging Bull and Goodfellas and stuff, but why, why didn't we talk about Mean Streets before? So uh, I think it's uh, well-deserved the reevaluation. And I think even if you hate it the first time, just to go back now and see how you feel about it now. Maybe you still hate it. Maybe you'd like go and think, oh, well, this is like filling this void for castploitation movies that we don't have. Because you look at Fast and Furious and it's all CGI and ludicrous sort of stunts and growling about family and stuff. And here we just have like real cars smashing each other and just like shot with such a voyeuristic lens that we're just missing that in cinema now. So... Tim, your final thoughts. Uh, so pretty much, I mean, for me, it's uh, Death Proof has been one that I've probably revisited just as probably more than any of the other ones, actually, now that I think about it. Mostly just because, I guess, you know, being a horror fan, but I don't know, just uh, Grindhouse as a whole, like, I think nowadays, if it came out, would get so much better of a reception just because of nowadays we have 15-year-olds that know who Dario Argento is and watch Fulci films and fucking try to go watch Takashi Miike films. And, you know, back in uh, 2007, you know, there wasn't that. I mean, uh, and of course, it might just be me being younger then and not noticing it. But I just feel like back then it was like, you know, I could walk through my whole school and talk to people about horror movies and they kind of just knew what they knew. You know, they knew the ring. They knew the grudge. They knew like what was uh, what was in front of them. You know what I mean? Like 
what was a new release and uh, i feel like we've gotten as time goes on as like just film fans in general like we've gotten more kind of going back and not stands especially with 2020 like being such a year of like quarantine uh like so many people like started going back like as far as that year so i just feel like uh grindhouse now would get so much more respect but i do feel like death proof as a film itself is so much better like i love planet terror but that's just coming from a horror fan that loves schlocky shit i feel like that is gonna find like that would find its same fan base and still be like a big hit or like a like a b cult hit but i feel like death proof could be a just like a tarantino hit period if it would have came out on its own with the extended cut to begin with especially with the whole like that first half just looks so fucking great with like the literally he just like took the film and rubbed it against rocks almost and it just looks so like awesome and uh, i actually love that contrast i know we haven't really mentioned that either or whatever but i don't know overall just uh, i love death proof it's like i said it's third in my whole filmography you know or not filmography but you know the tarantino filmography and um it's just one that i revisit often and stuff like that miss electric close us out i guess my final thoughts would be to go watch death proof Give it a freaking chance. And there's a lot of Tarantino fans out there or casual Tarantino fans who still haven't seen this movie or haven't revisited it because they watched it with uh, Planet Terror and just, you know, didn't care for that whole experience, especially now that it's, what is it, the 15th year anniversary in 15 years. I think everybody has grown as a person or totally different person (laughs) than you were 15 years ago. Watch the movie enjoy it for what it is realize that yes all those scratches are intentional in the beginning it's supposed to jump and that gets the point it's supposed to look like an old movie yeah give it a freaking chance because i mean there's something for everybody in that film if there were any movies of his that i would recommend because i know like the hateful eight draws a very particular uh type of movie fan a lot of people don't like it because that's a lot of dialogue can be drawn out a little bit and what People don't care for that, so I understand. I I get it, but the two films that I always tell people to go watch um, that I feel like is is for everywhere anybody can really like it is Death Proof and Django. I think they they are very likable films. You can watch it and just be absolutely amazed by every little detail, every little thing that, other than just the obviously amazing dialogue that he like he draws you in, like you feel like you're in the movie and. That's something that's not that easy to do. I feel um, when I watch other films, I don't feel I feel like I'm just watching a movie. And when I watch Quentin's movies, I feel like I'm a part of it. I feel like I'm hanging out with the girls or hanging out with the guys or I'm about to do this heist or, you know, um, who who poisoned who kind of thing. Like you're playing, you're suddenly playing a game, you know, like it's so cool. It's such a great film. And I think more people need to just watch it again if you've already seen it watch it again if you haven't 100 percent, go see it. It, goes, it, it it deserves more love than than people lead on to for sure look i know you guys like him he's likable but he fucked another woman on my birthday how can you not be on my side well i admit that sounds bad it is bad it just sounds like there's a little more to it than that were you two fucking hell no <laughs> hello is your name Abenathy? Sorry. The answer to your question is no. Of course not. What do you mean, no, of course not? The reason Cecil hasn't had a girlfriend in six years is because girls will fuck him. And if you fuck Cecil, you don't become one of his girlfriends. Not to say I want to be his girlfriend, but if I did want to be his girlfriend, if I fucked him, I wouldn't be his girlfriend. I'd be 
one of his regulars. <laughs> and I'm just getting too fucking old for that shit. Have you let him do anything? Yes. I've let him give me a foot massage, and when we go to the movies, I've let him hold my hand. Bitch, you might be acting like you're 12 years old, but he just acting like a man. You need to break that nigga off a piece. Let me get this straight. You're not fucking him. Mm -mm. You're not sucking him. Mm -mm. You're not giving him any tongue, but Daryl Hannah's standing is. Okay, can we just take my sex life off the table? Actually, uh, it was Cecil's sex life that was on the table, and your lack of one. <laughs> Fuck both of you and your little high five. And that's a wrap on our very special Death Proof 50th Anniversary Retrospective. I would once again like to thank my panel of Mr. Elwood Jones, host of the AC Film Club Podcast, Movie and Tea Podcast, and the Game War Podcast, Mr. Tim Trashmouth Mills, host of the Horror Flicks and Guitar Picks Podcast, and Ms. Sin Electric, musician, composer, and lead singer of the alt-rock band Noise of Rumors, for joining me today to help celebrate and look back at this highly underrated and underappreciated film from Quentin Tarantino. I want to give a special thanks to Miss Electric, whose amazing song, Love Song of Vengeance, from her 2022 EP, My Crazy 88, she so graciously allowed us to use as the opening and closing theme song for all of our anniversary special episodes. Now you can find the links to all of my guest socials, podcasts, and music in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. I hope you'll join me again December 9th as a new panel of three will accompany me to discuss, reminisce, and celebrate the 25th anniversary of Jackie Brown. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.